Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Greetings, friends. Welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the film review podcast, where good taste and bad taste are ours. We have those things. <laughs> uh, sometimes in turn, sometimes simultaneously. Yeah. Sometimes we have... Um, um, sometimes we have great, yeah. taste, uh, great taste about great movies. Uh, yeah. that, that's, that's our thing. I don't My name is Whitney Seibold. I'm a film critic. Uh, you can call me whatever the heck you want. With me, as always, is William. Uh, introduce yourself. Uh, my name is William Bibiani. I already completely bombed out on the intro to this episode. Yeah, well done. But screw it. We're going to keep it in. <laughs> Every single sad moment of me not... How many times have we done this show? Uh, this is le- our two hundred at least ten. This is our two hundred and twentieth episode of Critically Acclaimed, and then before that, we had done like over a thousand episodes mm. of another podcast. And so I'm we, still been, learning. Damn we're doing it! Doing it for a little bit here. Anyway, uh, yeah, my name is William Bibiani. I'm a critic. Everyone calls me Bibbs, and we are here to review some movies we missed last week because of scheduling issues. So we have a bit of catching up to do. We have a lot of movies to review this week. Here's the list of films on the docket. Yeah. All right, we got Chip and Dale, Rescue Rangers, and not, as I believed for decades, Hmm. Chip and Dale's Rescue Rangers. Chip and Dale are the Rescue Rangers. I realized that, but I thought that since Chip and Dale ran the organization... Okay. It was Chip and Dale's Rescue Rangers, much like hmm. McDonald's owns like, the, the restaurant. You remember the, the theme song, though? It just says, when you need help, just call Chip and Dale. Rescue Rangers. You can easily, you know, adding the S doesn't change, like, the, the no. meter there. You can still, okay, we'll talk about this later. <laughs> we got Chip and Dale, colon, Rescue Rangers. We've mm. got the remake of Firestarter. We have the new Alex Garland horror thriller, Men. We have uh, the new Shudder horror film, The Sadness. Uh, we have a new drama, it's a drama, right, Pleasure? Uh, yes. Okay. Uh, I, I didn't see that one. Okay. Uh, we have a new uh, sci-fi movie called Mondo Kane. We've got uh, the new drama The Survivor and a new documentary called George Carlin's American Dream. It's a lot. It's a uh, lot. It's, it's, it's a two, big day. two weeks worth of films, so that, that's, that's why it's so many. So let's just jump right in. And I hesitate to say, <laughs> usually we like to open with whatever like the big movie is. Mm. And if I were to guess, I'd say the movie that most people probably watched well, it's the one we missed. It's uh, Top Gunner Danger Zone. Oh God! Okay, we okay. We'll 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 take a moment here. So, um, Asylum. There yeah. is a the, group the called Asylum. the Asylum, and the Asylum, and honestly, God bless them. God bless them for keeping people at work. They they just they just churn them out, don't they? And just people work, mm-hmm. and everyone's happy. And uh, what they do for the majority of their films. Uh, is well, I don't know if it's a majority anymore, but it used to be Mockbusters. Oh no, it's it's still very much their their uh, yeah their rise on death. Well, I know um, they still mostly do. I also know that occasionally they'll just churn out a silly family yeah. film or whatever like that. But a Mockbuster is not just like a it's not a spoof of a blockbuster. What a Mockbuster is is it's a very low budget movie 
that is designed to trick you into thinking you're renting a big-budget movie that just came out. It, now, it's really difficult to tell if The Asylum is... <clears throat> However way you look How at it... How cynical they are about yeah, it. If, if, they're, if they're really mercenary about it and they're trying to get sort of like an ironic winking audience, it's mm-hmm. like, oh, haha, they made Transmorphers. Clearly, they don't expect us to actually confuse this with Transformers. Right. Uh, let's rent it and see how crappy it is. Yeah. Which is kind of, uh, you know, like Full Moon does that a lot. There's like eight evil bong movies now. Mm-hmm. Uh, no one's watching those yeah. unironically. You're or, watching them because it's silly to watch when you're high. Or if the asylum really <laughs> thinks that they're tricking people. I think it's a little bit of both. I was working at a video store, God, about 15 years ago now. I'm mm. old. Uh, but I was working at a video store, and so it was right around the time the Da Vinci Code came out. Oh. And there was a mockbuster for Da Vinci Code. I forget if it was the asylum or someone else. But someone had put out uh, something very similar. The, uh, the asylum did put out a film called The Da Vinci Treasure. Uh-huh. That's was it at the same time? At the same time. Okay, yeah. then it was probably the Da Vinci Treasure. The, uh, the the someone walks into the the video rental store and they ask a question, which honestly we used to get a lot, which is, "Is this movie on home video yet?" And oftentimes it was a matter of, "No, not yet." You mm. know, it only came out three months ago. Uh, but sometimes he, someone just had their signals crossed and it was a movie that was new in theaters. And so they said, "Hey, is the Da Vinci Code on DVD yet?" And I said, "No." Because it wasn't. It was still in theaters. Like, literally, it just came out. And they said, uh, I'm pretty sure it is. And I'm like, I'm 100% confident it's not. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they got that snooty, the customer is always right attitude. And said, listen, I was just at, like, a Blockbuster, and they had, like, an empty box mm-hmm. for Da Vinci Code. And I was like, I see what happened here. Um, <laughs> you were tricked by a Mockbuster. Something just, you care just enough to know that something like this is out in theaters, mm-hmm. but not enough to know any more details than that. So, you would potentially rent that, and even if you were not convinced once it started playing, you got their money, or they got your money. Yeah, so... So, I think they're comfortable so tricking a small portion of people who just aren't paying attention <laughs> or don't care. The, can't fool all the people all the time. Oh, like, you can imagine, like, uh, some back in the video store days before, you know, we had a little bit more, like, control over uh, research. Mm. You know, nowadays we can look things up online more easily. Uh, some kids said, Mom, hey, hey, kids, I'm going to the video store. What do you want me to rent? Mm. Oh, the new Transformers! Mom's <laughs> like, okay, transformy things. Okay, cool. Mm. And then they comes home with Transmorphers. Okay. You know, like, you can see how that could happen. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite asylum tricks was Independence Day. T.S. apostrophe. Independence. Ooh! That, that, was, that was a bit of a trick. That's a good yeah. one. Uh, some others. Uh, Atlantic Rim, as opposed nice. to Pacific Rim. There's an MST3K episode about there that. Is. Pretty funny, too. Uh, snakes on a Train. Yep. Uh, one of their first ones was uh, when... Was back in 2005. The trend sort of began when they did put out H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, which is fair game, because it's based on a book. It's public domain, yeah. that one. So, like, yeah, they, they, they were they, totally able to do that. And, and uh, a lot of people, a lot of studios put out Titanic movies when James Cameron's yeah. film was really, really Again, big as well. Again, public domain. That really yeah. happened. They, they can't control uh, that. Yeah. But then they started putting out things like Transmorphers, AVH, Alien versus Hunter. Yeah. Uh, a paranormal Entity. Mm-hmm. Uh, Almighty Thor. I've seen that one. That one's mostly uh, Richard Grieco walking around Los Angeles lost. That's pretty... And that's yeah, yeah. and that's the plot. He's Loki and he's lost in LA well, and he's just walking around. One of my favorites is Alone for Christmas. Oh. <laughs> that doesn't even sound right. No. 
uh, Triassic World uh-huh. uh, and uh, Triassic World's gonna have very different dinosaurs in it. Their their biggest movies were the the Sharknado movies. Those were originals mm-hmm. of theirs. They also did the multi headed shark attack series, three headed shark attack, yeah, four headed shark attack, etc. Each they've, sequel, the shark. Got they've done some head. just some some cheesy. Uh, they, they, I think they did like Mega Shark. Yeah, some, some of those, of those yeah. sci-fi channel monster movies are not all of those. Actually, yeah. uh, scant few of those belong to the asylum. Yeah, but they did a few. But and, uh, uh, they, yeah, their yeah their business model. Is, either way, no matter how mercenary they are, they're yeah. using the hype of a big blockbuster to hype for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they will see that something's in production. They'll mm-hmm. rush their own thing into production, and they can shoot things on on the cheap real yep. fast. Mm-hmm. They could probably throw together a movie in like two weeks. And that might be a slight exaggeration, but pretty fast. Yeah, yeah. Okay, maybe, maybe like a, a four-day shoot. Uh, they can get a, they can get a movie can, out in a few months. They they can get Michael Pere or Eric Roberts on you know on, on they're a on, they're on standby. They're, they're just in a stable somewhere. <laughs> it's 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 like uh, it's like the Ghostbusters. They're just like this alarm goes off in Eric Roberts' house, and he jumps in a pole, and <laughs> next thing you know, he's down there, and he's making like the mummy. Rejuvenates <laughs> instead of the mummy returns. So um, they're at not an asylum film. A different mockbuster called mm. Top Gunner came out in 2020. Oh, wasn't that wasn't asylum? That wasn't an asylum film. Oh shit! Uh, and that one had Eric Roberts. Okay. Whether or not this is a sequel has been debated because I haven't seen either of these movies. Uh-huh. But Michael Pere came back for Top Gunner: colon, Danger Zone, which opened on Friday, the same day they dropped their trailer. I, uh, I wrote an article about it for Slash Film. There wasn't even an IMDb entry yet. Yeah. There was no Wikipedia entry. They just announced it. They announced it. They rushed out a trailer online. I believe it premiered on Joe Blow. Bless them. Uh, and unlike any Asylum movie I can think of, I'm sure a lot of them, mm. when they had a decent cast and maybe a little bit of money, they had some kind of premiere party. They rented out a movie theater and they would show them at a movie theater once. Yeah. For, sure. for, for the cast. I'm the sure cast that, that yeah. happens a lot. I've seen that happen. I've seen that happen with porn. Uh, but what I have never seen is an Asylum mockbuster released in theaters. <laughs> One week ahead of the film it's mocking. Uh, oh, and not only that, if you think about it, because I'm, I'm shocked that the Top Gunner is an Asylum, and I'm double-checking that just for my own edification. All right. But um, if you think about it, Top Gun was pushed back about two years. So oh, it those- is the Asylum. Oh, it is the Top Gunner. It was the Asylum. Okay, we're not crazy. So Top Gunner Danger Zone could very well be the sequel to Top Gunner. It is. I think it is. And here's the thing. But they're both mocking the same movie. Well, the movie was supposed to come out, I think, in 2020. And then it kept getting pushed back. They were able to make two of them (laughs) before... All the marketing's been done for them. And, And now someone, some poor, hapless, bless them individual... Was walking around. He's playing in one theater in California. It's playing in Glendale, which is about like in good traffic, about a thirty-minute drive from where we are. In yeah. bad traffic, it's about five hours. But uh, and it's thirty minutes away. We were gonna go. We couldn't because it was only playing one time a day mm. in this theater it in just Glendale. Didn't, just didn't time out well for us. But I'm just imagining someone there with his family, and they're only half reading the marquee, <laughs> and it's like, oh, Top Gun came out earlier than I thought. And then they buy the tickets, mm. and then they go see it, and they realize it has like the marketing budget of a He-Man commercial from the 80s. Like, <laughs> oh, God damn, I'm mad yeah. I couldn't go see that. We, we went to instead, well, this is important, and this is just, uh, we're not reviewing this, but um, uh, I, me and my partner, Michelle, we were going to go uh, see Top Gunner. But things happen, we only had time to see one movie today. And so instead, we went to see, finally went, went to see Everything Everywhere All at Once. Okay. Uh, which, uh, I'm not going to go into great detail because everyone said everything. It is really good. 
I'm sure an opportunity will come up later this year to discuss it in more detail. But for people who said, hey, Bibbs, have you seen it yet? Yes. <laughs> it's good. I promise you. It's good. But we went to go see it because it was our last opportunity to see a movie at one of the best theaters in Los Angeles, which sadly closed down uh, today tonight, as of this recording. is the last night. Yeah, yeah uh, it is the Landmark Theater uh, in uh, Westwood, hmm. corner of Pico and Westwood. Uh, this theater had started off as a very small three or four screen theater in a mall. Uh, and then it expanded well, back, when back the mall a, expanded. Back in the day, uh, the Westside Pavilion was yeah. a mall here in West L.A. Um, that was built in 1985. Mm-hmm. And at some point in its history, uh, Samuel Goldwyn Cinemas was a thing. And they opened up that little teeny tiny four-screen theater. Like Each yeah. each theater had like 50 seats. It was itty-bitty. Yeah, there was like one that had like 75. There was one big screen, but it was yeah. like 75. The big screen. Even yeah. the big screen was little. And eventually yeah. Landmark Theaters uh, bought that out. Yeah. And so it, it became a landmark theater. It was the landmark Westside Pavilion. Mm-hmm. Uh, then that's in, where I worked. <clears throat> that's the only movie theater I ever worked at. Was that little tiny one? The little one, yeah. yeah. And that was fine. I I saw Pokemon Part Five there. Oh god! The, they released the first five theatrically. I was like yeah. one of four people who saw Pokemon I, Heroes in I, theaters. I, I worked there for about six weeks. It was around the time the Motorcycle Diaries came out. That was our big oh, release at go. the time. Uh, but yeah, in two thousand seven, I believe. Um, the Westside Pavilion tried to expand into this outdoor uh, plaza. That didn't really work. Mm. So they remodeled this entire uh, across... Like, they built a bridge to the building across the street from the mm-hmm. Westside Pavilion. And they were going to build more mall. Didn't work. So they built it into this 12-screen theater, the Landmark. Uh, uh, it which was, was a 12-screen, like, independent theater, too. Yeah, like, every was, once in a while they'd show a big movie, but mostly they showed independent uh, uh, art house, international mm-hmm. cinema, they were always careful, Always careful to have a good number of screens devoted to the independent stuff, even when yeah. they did have big blockbusters. Yeah, every once in a while, just to make the money, they'd have them, but they'd have a Marvel yeah. movie. But it'd be on, like, one screen, and then everything else exactly. would be. Yeah, um, yeah uh... And it was part of this big uh, renovation project. They, it was going to be called the Landmark Film Center. Mm. Uh, they, felt, they felt that sounded too much like a school. I know all this because I worked for Landmark Theaters. I worked at the New Art for many years. Yeah. Uh, and they, yeah, they, they changed it to just the Landmark, which was a little confusing. Mm. Uh, but yeah, it became really successful. There was a little tavern in the bottom floor. Nice tavern, it was right too. next to uh, uh, Barnes & Noble, and the bridge led right into the mall. So you could make a day of it. They had a lot of industry events there, and I remember on many an occasion, uh, there would be some sort of uh, advanced screening of a movie for review purposes. Like, that's where they screened uh, Mad Max Fury Road, for example. Mm. But every once in a while, there'd be a screening, and before the screening, they would be like, and then before the screening, there'll be free drinks at the bar an hour beforehand. And I'm like, oh, cool, so you want us to get drunk for this one? <laughs> don't trust us to watch this one sober eh? <laughs> and that's and you knew it was like danger zone but still Ooh. free booze um but um anyway they they had wonderful uh, q and a's there they had uh, uh you know, props from uh, new movies would be on display. It was mm. really, really nice. Concessions are really, really wonderful. It, it was parking was plentiful. Uh, it was designed by the same people who did ArcLight. Actually, yeah. Landmark hired the same people uh, to redesign it. So the the idea of selecting your seats ahead of time mm. that was pioneered by ArcLight and then taken by Landmark, and now every yeah. theater does it. Yeah, uh, they had a couple of specialty uh, theaters mm. on the second floor, which was like very limited seating. It was only like thirty people, but every seat was like a love seat. Yeah, it was really yeah. cozy. It was nice. Uh, anyway, so that theater, uh, the mall it was in, collapsed. Jesus, like ten years ago, um, give or take. No, 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 no. It, Not that uh, long ago. It's it been I, a while. My son is seven, and I took him there when he was a little kid. But, okay, uh, so it's been about five. years. It's been about five years since uh, the mall itself yeah. died, and the only thing left in that husk of a giant—it's like two city blocks. Mm. It's like this husk of a giant space. The only thing left was this movie theater. Yeah, the uh, Google bought the space. 
uh, and they're turning it into a Google regional office. Oh, God. So it's all... That, that's why rent has been going up in this area. Oh, they, they expect why? all of the Google people to move in Oh, here. fuckers. This, oh, this, 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 I hate them. A, a, a we, li- we live like a mile away here. from this place. Yeah. So, yeah. like, we, we rev over the area. But um, apparently, uh, yeah, the, the, the movie theater was doing fine. Mm-hmm. Movie theater was actually, like, it was making money. It was doing what it had to do. You know, pandemic took a hit, but it's doing fine. Uh, and then, yeah, their lease was up, and then their landlord decided not to fill it because they're turning to this big Google thing. Mm. So they just, even though they're a successful business, they got kicked the fuck out, and they got kicked the fuck out with very little notice for anyone in town. Yeah, it was it was announced in uh, a few of the trade papers, like that follow this sort of thing. Yeah, uh, that it had until the end of the month. The thirty first yeah. was going to be its last day, and then uh, we went to see Alex Garland's, Garland's film The Men. Yeah. at that theater, and they said, nope, tomorrow. Yeah, like, to, re- like the like next a, day it was going to shut down. They don't even get Memorial Day weekend to rake in a little extra cash, like right before they cash it. Nope, no, nothing. Today was the last day. So really took us by surprise. So we went to go see everything everywhere all at once to just say goodbye to the place. It was a good send-off. It was a nice movie to see to, to close it off. And that's why we didn't see Top Gunner Danger Zone. And I only feel somewhat guilty about that. Because, let's be honest here, how often are we going to get to see the Asylum movies in theaters? But, <laughs> last chances go see it in a theater that have a lot of special memories for, so, real fast, just pure sentiment to everyone who worked at the Landmark, to everyone who went to the Landmark, uh, it was a wonderful place. And we're going to miss it, and honestly, that is a lot of screens to just get obliterated yeah, in Los Angeles, so and 12, I really hope some... fewer screens. I really have, hope someone opens up something to replace it at some point, yeah, because well, that's a lot... L.A. needs it, though. You need those movies to open in L.A. for, like, Academy Awards consideration. You yeah, need the, uh, screens in L.A. The, the future of movie theaters is going to be a lot different from what we're used to. Very the, true. The, the sort of glory days of the, the multiplex that we grew up with in, like, the 80s and 90s mm. is gone. It's gone. It's yeah. effectively dead. There are yeah. still multiplexes out there. That's where yeah. people are going for the most part. And there may be good summers ahead yeah. where everything's kind of oh, nice, yeah, but yeah, it's... And the Marvel yeah. movies will continue to make money, no matter you know however few screens there are, they'll, they'll worm their way in there. But uh, people watch movies at home now. People watch movies at home now, and what I'm what I'm guessing is going to happen is a lot of the big mainstream theaters are going to convert into thanks to uh, a lot of the vertical integration laws that were overturned uh, mm-hmm. last year. I guess it was 2020. It was like the last um, year Trump was in office. Yeah, uh, they are uh, going to turn into branded theaters. We're going to. Yeah go to the Disney or the Apple or the Amazon. Well, Netflix or, bought uh, the Egyptian, didn't they? Uh, that's right. So yeah, yeah so Netflix these, owns the theater now. A lot of yeah. these rich streaming services who are making all yeah. their money on home are going to buy those theaters and they're going to screen their own things. Yeah. Okay, that's what cinema is going to look like. They're going to pour a lot mm-hmm. of money into these giant movie palaces. The other multiplexes are mm-hmm. going to be smaller independent films. They don't have a lot of overhead. Yeah. Uh, Lemley Theaters is another independent uh, line here in Los Angeles and they saved a lot of money by... Uh, carving up their theaters into smaller screens and by eliminating the projection booth they realized they oh. could project from smaller uh, digital projectors that they would just mount on the wall in the theater with the with the audience oh i didn't realize they'd done that okay yeah they're not shining through like there's no booth where there's people wandering huh. around they just start them up with an, uh, an ipad now <clears throat> wow okay. uh, so that that's a great way to run a film on the cheap run a theater yeah. on the cheap yeah. uh the uh the uh, concessions are going to get more elaborate as we they, go. They're going to be full. That's full where the money is. The, that's where the theater makes money. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, is, I think uh, I think every theater is going to serve booze from here on out. That used to be incredibly rare, and yeah. now it's just going to be the norm. Yeah. Uh, and so, so yeah, seeing the something like the landmark die out is sort of like a chapter is really close in L. A. In L. A. When, when a, you can't when keep a, that a, going, a giant, that's, that's a real giant bummer. successful theater can't oh. stay in business. And, it, and we've seen this also, and I know we'll get to the reviews. I'm sorry, but the, I, I, this is kind of important to me. Um, 
We've seen this also in the, the midst of and the and post pandemic, mm-hmm. where a lot of local businesses, places you have to physically go to to enjoy, yeah. a lot of them restaurants, but also stores and mm-hmm. other things. Um, when they close down, you you're losing like a huge chunk of the community. Mm. There's nowhere to go. Let's just say no <laughs> other comparable theater opens mm. and the landmark is just gone now. And that whole giant place, which used to be a mall where people would go to eat and shop for Christmas and, you know, whatever. They would just go there all the time. Mm. It was a place of congregation. Yeah, yeah. When you lose that place of congregation, it just becomes a place where Google employees work. Where you go? We're just going to stay in our homes more anyway. Yeah, and well, it just—it just, it becomes more probably, isolating, and it's really depressing I'm, to me. It's depressing, and uh, I mean, it's been happening for a while now. It's been happening for the, the better part of a decade or twenty right. years. I'm ago. saying it accelerated yeah. so much in the last couple of years. It wasn't like a yeah, slow the, fade. It was just—it's yeah, really sudden. COVID now. really pushed things along yeah. a lot faster than they were just already going. Yeah, and listen, I'm not overly <laughs> romantic about how cinema needs to be seen in a theater in order to be great. I don't happen to believe that, but it is a a real downer that we're losing the opportunity to do so. And on top of that, that that's just one large one piece of a larger wave of there are fewer places to go outside. Hmm. And that sucks. And it's fewer places to meet people and share. I'm I'm old old enough that I'd still like to go to stores and meet people in public places. Yeah. Anyway. But, you know, I'm in my 40s, so what do I know? Anyway, uh, so anyway, so that's that's the story of that, and it makes us really sad. And now it's time to do some reviews. Sorry it took so long. Um, streaming! <laughs> let's move What's on it? to streaming. And let's talk about a new film uh, that is based off of a cartoon series that I watched when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And they have a new high-concept take on it. And by new, I mean it's from Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, Chippendale Rescue Rangers. No possessive. Chippendale Rescue Rangers. Rangers. And the new idea behind (coughs) Chippendale Rescue Rangers is rather than just do an animated movie where we Mm -hmm. do that again, um, they decided to do the kind of movie where actors who had to pretend to be something now have to do that thing for real. And you've seen this in uh, Galaxy Quest, A Bug's Life, Three Amigos. I was was reminded of like Shane Black in a lot of ways. Like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang where uh, Robert Downey Jr., He's not even an actor. He just stumbles into being an actor. Now he has to pretend to be an actor. Yeah. He's pretending to solve an, a real crime. Yeah, there's there's a real uh, self-aware wittiness mm. to this thing because it's Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers. It stars Chip and Dale, John Mulaney, who I'm very mad at right now, plays mm. Chip and... Uh, um, Andy Sandberg plays yeah. Dale. Uh, oh, if, if, you is... ever, if you never saw the show, it was on the Disney afternoon. It was on daytime afternoon yeah, this... rotation. And it was Chip and Dale from the old uh, Donald Duck cartoons. They were chipmunks. And they teamed up with a couple of new characters. There was Gadget, who was a mouse who built gadgets. There was Zipper, who was a fly, who was a fly. And <laughs> Monterey Jack, who was a big, strong guy who loved cheese. And they would solve mysteries. It was basically like a takeoff of... Steve well, Cannell or Don Belsario shows yeah, where was, people would just interesting people hmm. with weird gimmicks would solve crimes. This was a, a really uh, strange and weirdly lucrative and successful trend that Disney had for a second there in the late 80s and early 90s. They take yeah. stock characters and repurpose them into different genres. As though uh, as though the character, and this is I think where the premise of the film comes in, mm. as though the character themselves was someone you could recast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, Scrooge McDuck from uh, that old Christmas Carol mm-hmm. became an adventurer in DuckTales. To be fair, he was uh, that in the comics for many, many years. That was an adaptation. Yeah. The, they really uh, kicked in, I think, with Chip and Dale. It kind of, yeah, mutated in with uh, Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers. Yeah, uh, Chip and Dale 
Dale was dressed as Magnum P.I. Yeah, he and had Chip was, And Tri- Chip was dressed as uh, Indiana Jones. They even yep. joke about that in the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, that led to uh, truly unholy things like Tailspin. Tailspin makes is, no sense. Which is an adaptation of a 1939 film uh-huh. called Only Angels Have Wings. You know, kids but, love that. Yeah, a, a Kids that, love Only when a, Angels a, Have Wings. A film yeah. that little kids just love. And they recast yeah. it with characters from the 1967 version of The Jungle Book. Yeah. Because those two movies go together. Yeah, uh, so, I wish I could have been there. <laughs> Not for the pitch. Not for the pitch. The pitch makes sense. I I buy, okay, we're going to do, it's this genre, but with these animals, and it'll be fun for animation. I can see it. I want to see the day they did the cocaine. <laughs> I just want to see they, the, the the pregame pile of cocaine. Yeah, and I want to I want to see a, like we're gonna do this and invent a show. Okay, no, no, I've got it, I've got it. Okay, so we're gonna do Mr. Smith goes to Washington with Goofy. No, that's stupid. We're not gonna do that. We're gonna do Mrs. Miniver, but, <laughs> but Lady with, in the Tramp. With Lady in the Tramp, it's great. It's brilliant. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> All about Eve Cruella Deville style. No, no, no. That's no, nobody wants to see Cruella Deville in a movie. <laughs> uh, anyway, it was it was amazingly yeah, it was, successful this formula. Uh, yeah, so they did. Uh, Goofy got cast in a sitcom that was successful enough to get two feature films out of it, yeah. and now we're onto the feature film of Chippendale Rescue Rangers. Yeah. The Chippendale from the uh, old '50s Disney cartoons are gone. We, we are that, ignoring those that part of their canon. That part of history no longer exists. They're about our age. They're in their forties. Yeah, uh, they were young actors in the early '80s when they were uh, on Chippendale Rescue Rangers, and yeah. now they're about out in the real world. Uh, they long since broke up, like yeah, a they, lot of Hollywood stories do. Someone went off to do a spinoff and broke up the show, and mm-hmm. uh, and they haven't spoken to each other uh, in did, like twenty years. Uh, Chip is just living at home. He's an, uh, an insurance salesman. Yeah. And, uh, and he's a car- little cartoon chipmunk in a world where humans and cartoon animals interact, like Roger Rabbit. Yeah. Uh, Dale is still trying to work into uh, show business, but he is now on the convention circuit where he's like yeah. signing headshots. He's, he's basically desperate to do anything he can do. If you yeah. offered him a cameo in an episode of a reboot of Baywatch as himself, he'd do it. Like, right, right. no dignity, <laughs> I just want the gig. He's he's Michael Pere in Top Gunner Danger Zone. Ooh, uh, take that. Little little bit of a connection there nice. uh, in one of the film's funniest gags his booth is straight across from that of ugly sonic that is <laughs> That's a really the, funny the, the badly designed sonic the hedgehog from the first version of sonic the hedgehog yeah, the, the trailer movie. that nobody liked and then they forced yeah. all those poor vfx they, artists to redo it like in a, in they, a ridiculous amount of time and then they fired those vfx yeah, artists the, the uh, <laughs> those poor people yeah, the, evidently that that first version of Sonic was his his own independent actor who got fired. Yeah, so he had to have his scenes. He, he, was, he was like Eric Stoltz in Back to the Future. Yeah, like yeah. except Eric Stoltz had a successful career afterwards. So, so yeah. but but now he's like, uh, you can tell he's a little bit burnt out by this like chance he almost got and then didn't get in on it. Yeah, he's talking about he has like this reality TV series where he does ride-alongs with the FBI, yeah. and you're never entirely sure if he's making it up or not. It's like signing autographs, yeah. and they're laughing at him. Yeah, you can't laugh at me if I'm in on the joke. Ugly Sonic is hilarious. Another, there's that's, also, and that's the, uh, kind of the level of humor we're dealing with with Chip and Dale. A lot of, a lot of point and click humor. A lot of, hey, remember, like another person who sent, who's got a booth next to them mm. at that convention, uh, Tigra, the Avenger from one of the Avengers cartoons nobody remembers. <laughs> and I gotta be tell, I gotta tell you something. As a fan of West Coast mm. Avengers as a kid, that this is how we finally get Tigra. Mm. Bit of a bummer, but she comes across okay. A lot of people, a uh, lot of characters. We see in this universe got the short end of the stick. We, there's a scene. There's a scene where uh, here in Los Angeles we have a place called the Valley. It's uh, probably 
it's probably the cheapest place to live, but it's also unbearably hot, and there's nothing there. Even in the dead of winter, it's where all the porn is made. And yeah, yeah, and uh, but there's a gag in this universe. It's the Uncanny Valley, mm. and that's where all of the CGI characters from the early 2000s who oh. looked realistic but never quite looked right mm. all live there. And there's a scene where they're walking past an alley, and the cats from Cats are fighting. Yeah, that's really cute. Mm. Um, one of the characters played by Seth Rogen is uh, like a, a Viking warrior of some yeah. kind from from like a, from a I don't know, like a Morrowind kind of game, like a video yeah. game. And you know, like when you're the, playing the a video game, is, you, uh, you click on them and they're sort of looking dead eyed at you. Mm. Uh, but he never actually makes eye contact because he's not animated to do that. That's it. That's the, a gag. The, the jo- and they, the the characters comment on that. It's like their eyes aren't ever looking right in your direction. Isn't that right, Chip? Uh, the, and the story is, uh, yeah, Chip and Dale are called out of retirement when Monterey Jack is kidnapped yeah. by uh, a mysterious shadowy supervillain who's involved in, and I love this plot point, a bootlegging ring. Yeah. It turns out all of those bootleg films you see, the Asylum movies, yeah. the bootleg films you <laughs> see like in the grocery store, uh, those are the original stars that have been like mutated by an animation machine yeah. into off-brand versions of themselves. If you're not sure what we're talking about, uh, a lot of the stuff that Disney does, especially uh, their public domain stuff, like when they did Cinderella or uh-huh. Beauty and the Beast, um, there are a lot of low-budget animation studios that would do basically just what Asylum did, either right around the same time or a year after. They would release on home video something that looked similar. Something that looked eerily or, similar, and they put they put in sometimes they put in some effort. Oftentimes they would not. Mm-hmm. There's a, a YouTube critic uh, I'm, I I like named uh, Phelan Porteous, Phelan with a PH, uh, or just Phelus, P H E L O U S, and he has for many years now done a really impeccable job tracking down and reviewing like every bootleg version of Beauty and the Beast, <laughs> and I got to tell you, some of them are astounding. Astoundingly, like there's one, there's the one bootleg version of Disney's Hunchback of Notre Dame, mm. where it turns out that the Hunchback underneath his shirt was actually angel wings the whole time. Oh my god! And I'm like, oh yeah, Victor Hugo would have loved that interpretation. That totally tracks. Yeah, that's, that's about class. Yeah. Uh, so this uh, is an actual thing uh-huh. that, and, and it's, it. I got. I will say this. It's a little pissy for Disney, the billion dollar industry, to like turn these people into like evil mm. monsters for siphoning a little money off of Disney's popularity. It's a little punching down if you think about it. But also in terms of just plotting, it's pretty clever. It's pretty clever. It's yeah. like, actually this this is this was put together by Andy Samberg and all of the people who put together Pop Star Never Stop Never Stopping. Which is one of the funniest movies of the last ten years. Yeah. Uh, so they can't help but be funny at least 85% of the time. Uh, they, this is a really good joke hit ratio. Yeah, and the, the beauty, beautiful thing about like the premise and sending it in Hollywood and this fictional Hollywood is that much like... Uh, th- there's a lot of movies and TV shows where they're set in a universe that supplies gags. Yeah. Even if you're not really looking for them, like the Flintstones helped pioneer this, where basically it's the honeymooners, but every once in a while, if a scene is boring, a mammoth will say something funny because mm. it's a there's a mammoth there. It's a living. Yeah. yeah. Uh, a lot of the scenes in Chippendale Rescue Rangers are like, you know, I know a lot of people are like watching streaming movies at home and not really, and only paying half attention. Like they're eating dinner or whatever. Uh-huh. It actually warrants you paying attention because there's a lot of little jokes. If you scan, like there's this one, uh, like the one time where Chip Pat very quickly passes by a, a bus stop bench and there's an ad saying Senator Butthead. Yeah. Like yeah. Butthead became a senator. Like <laughs> that's funny. Uh, there's a poster for uh, Mr. Doubtfire starring Meryl Streep, which I would totally pay to see. I'm not going to lie. Um, 
there's a lot of throwaway gags that are genuinely laugh out loud funny, and the plot itself is well, yeah. a little predictable. Dale drags Chip, who doesn't want to be along for this, into solving the mystery. They rekindle their friendship gradually over time. They solve the mystery. Um, the movie I was thinking, I know like the, the most obvious movie everyone's comparing this to, and I already did, is Who Framed Roger Rabbit, because it takes place in that world where tunes are real. There's another movie out there that I just want to throw out there that I know someone at Lonely Island is a fan of. Maybe all of them. Hmm. It's called Without a Clue. Uh, which is... Um, uh... Sherlock Holmes spoof. Yeah, and the idea of Without a Clue is that uh, Dr. Watson, uh, who is played by Ben Kingsley, did all the real detecting, and Sherlock Holmes was a fake character he created uh, to sort of spice up the narrative, and he hired an actor played by Michael Caine uh, to pretend to be that guy. And so the actual Sherlock Holmes got all the credit, but he was an idiot. And... And Watson did all the real work And then they break up And sure enough at some point Watson gets kidnapped And Michael Caine has to do the Sherlock Holmes thing for real There is a plot point A major plot point In this movie That I have not seen in any other movie But without a clue And the premise of We did, we were fakes now we have to do it for real And oh no now Dale has to solve all the problems mm. They're a fan <laughs> I, I, I'm just... And it's a cute movie, by the way. See, without a clue, it's a hoot. Hmm. But uh, anyway, it just, it's a little distracting to me. It's just like, ah, oh, they don't think anyone yeah. saw that. Uh, th- this is a nostalgia bait for people our age sure. who watch the original show. And they do actually refer heavily to specific episodes. Yeah. Uh, but more than anything, it's really trying to harken back to a very specific window in animated history. Mm. Where a lot of these uh, sort of early 90s uh, characters kind of came into being. It gets a little insufferable in some of the convention scenes where it's just like reference after reference. Mm-hmm. It's like after a while you're kind of rolling your eyes. Yeah, when, sometimes when they do sometimes, something kind of clever yeah. with it, then it gets yeah. a little better. There's a scene where they have to go to like the wrong side of the tracks, uh-huh. to the bad neighborhood where all of like the the cartoon criminals hang out. Uh-huh. And because it's a cartoon world, it looks like mainstream USA from Disneyland. Everything's yeah. like really bright and cheery and everybody's really friendly, but they're all involved in really horrible uh criminal dealings. Yeah. Uh the person they have to see is it's more or less the Swedish chef. It's a Muppet. Yeah. The Muppet is animated in CGI for the most part, but I yeah. like the, the idea that one of the characters is a Muppet in this world as well. Yeah. Uh, and the police chief in this universe is uh, played like, by J.K. Simmons. And he's like Gumby. It. He's Gum- He's like from a Gumby cartoon. And yeah. they actually animate him in stop motion. Yeah. It must have been incredibly difficult to get all of these different animation styles yeah. sort of on screen together. Because uh, another joke that we didn't mention is because Dale is still in the industry, uh, he he's has had, had some work. He's done. had some work done to make himself look better. And uh, in cartoon world, that means getting yourself turned from two D animation into CG. I, I do like appreciate that there's a gag in there where they talk about how Baloo was like the first person to do this with the Jungle Book. Oh, because Baloo was the animated Baloo from the Jungle Book, and then they did the. The John Favreau Jungle Book, and the idea is that's the same Baloo, right? That's and you know what, I I admire that. Listen, obviously there's a lot of pandering here, but what I admire is that it's not empty <clears throat> pandering. Yeah, some jokes don't work. Sometimes they overdo it. Hmm. But all of these gags are here. All of these premises are here because they thought out the world and the story really well. Yeah, like it makes sense. There's a few bits that are too easy. Fine, but like. It actually, uh, it actually tracks, and like it makes sense. There's a there's a gag in the movie I really like. It's a little thing, and it, you only you have to know it to get it. Where uh, Seth Rogen's character mm. like 
falls on the ground, and three other cartoon characters see if he's okay, and they're all other characters played by Seth Rogen. Yeah, like yeah. that's a funny gag. I oh. appreciate you you put in the effort to make that funny. Like you you mm. you know it, this is this may be a pandering nostalgia bait film, but it is not a lazy one. It is one where they put in a lot of effort to make the story work, the characters fun, the jokes funny, well, and, the, uh, and I would say a very impressive proportion of it works. Yeah, the 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 nostalgia it doesn't stand in the way of the movie. It, it's something that will enhance it if you're into it. And, sure. and I got a lot of those gags. Mm-hmm. I under, I know what all of those Seth Rogen characters were from. Mm-hmm. My, some of those scenes might be a little confusing if you're unfamiliar with all of that. It's like, mm-hmm. oh no, they, they got Eek the Cat. Who remembers Eek the Cat? Yeah, that well, uh, that one's pretty <laughs> obscure, but like, I, I feel like but, it's the sort of thing where like when I was a kid, Betty Boop cartoons weren't on TV a lot. Uh, so when Betty Boop showed up in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, I didn't have like this wave of understanding. Yeah. But I got it. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, I got it. So like kids are gonna not get every single reference. Adults aren't probably not gonna get every single reference. Uh but you don't have to because the story actually functions fine. Yeah. Even if you don't. And I appreciate that. Um so yeah, I, I gotta say, as as and again, I'm pissed at John Mulaney <laughs> and boy did that sour my experience a little bit, but yeah. the movie itself is very, very Ooh. good. So yeah, I, I, I can't take that away. I, I, I really dug it. It yeah. was really, really clever. Sounds really pandery. Sounds yeah. really cheap. It but is. no, they they, they put well, in the effort. It just goes to show that. you that like there's no such thing as a terrible idea. You can because t- this sounds like a terrible idea. This yeah, sounds pandering yeah. and shitty. It sounds like something that would make me roll my eyes. And but if you actually put in the effort to make it good, almost any pitch can be good. Yeah. And uh, they put in the effort. They actually really put in the effort to make sure this is actually a fully functioning, successful, you know, mm. entertaining, you know, you, you, I didn't cry or nothing, but like when <laughs> characters got back together who never, like when, oh, the gang's all back together. I'm like, oh, that's nice. Like that's, <laughs> you got that out of me. Um, like, oh, that's, that's nice that the gang's all back together. Good for them. They did it. Good, so good, kudos uh, to that. Good casting on the, the yeah. voice of Zipper, by the way. Oh, great cast. Yeah. I'm not going to ruin it. Don't look it up. Brilliant casting. <laughs> uh, next up, we're going to talk about another uh, reboot, mm. or in this case, uh, a remake. Uh, this came out last week. It is a remake of the Stephen King adaptation Firestarter. The original Firestarter came out in the early 80s. It was one of the first starring vehicles for Drew Barrymore. Yeah, and she was she was still a girl. She was Very a chi- little kid. Child, child actress at Very the time. Very little kid. And uh, the movie <clears throat> and the book uh, are about a, a couple of psychics. Uh, the father uh, can, like, sort of... Convince people to do things with his mind. He, mani- uh, he gives some. He gives you a one dollar bill. You think it's a hundred dollar bill. Yeah, exactly. It's like, or if he says you will quit smoking, and then you do. Like mm. you just, you're just convinced. And they uh, are. Uh, and uh, and the mom is telekinetic. She can move things with her mind. And they have a daughter, and their daughter is pyrokinetic. She can start fires with her mind, which is a very dangerous thing for a child to be able to do because they have no concept of discipline mm. and their emotions are unruly yeah, the, uh, and it opening, could be very uh, dangerous. The opening scene of this movie is uh, a, a baby starting a fire with its mind. Yeah. And they have to rescue it from a burning crib. Pretty, yeah. Pr- pretty dramatic opening. Yeah. Uh, that would be cool enough if they just sort of had superpowers like X-Men, mm-hmm. but there's this really long, convoluted, and completely useless backstory as to how they got their powers, <laughs> who's after them, and why. Yeah, there's a, and there's that's a, the bulk of this movie. Well, the okay, I want to talk a little bit about the original, because the original wasn't that good. No, it, it wasn't. Th- there's good stuff in it, like there's some really good pyrotechnics at the end, like mm. the final bit where Drew Barrymore just goes on a killing spree is actually kind of awesome. Like, they, it looks really cool. People are shooting bullets, and she's... Yeah. Making them explode in midair, but, but yeah. there was never a lot to Firestarter. Really, it's uh, it's a 
pretty standard people on the run from an evil organization type setup. Yeah. The organization is called The Shop, which would end up appearing in a variety of other Stephen King stories. Yep, that was in uh, The Lawnmower Man. It was in The Lawnmower Man. The, uh, the best uh, Stephen King movie. <laughs> that's the one he the, sued to the, get the, his the, name yeah, the, the one he loved so much he sued it. <laughs> um, but, uh, and, and uh, the other thing about the original is um, something that really sucks in it. Uh, you've got uh, oh, the George Native, C. Native American character George C. Scott, Scott plays a Native, Scott. Native American character, <laughs> and they were fine with that. There's actually an old interview with from Stephen <laughs> King where he was like, "I wasn't, I wasn't okay with it," but then I saw him in the makeup, and I was like, "Hey, they pulled it off." And I'm like, "No, Stephen, I'm, like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you some credit and chalk that up to the cocaine use in the '80s, buddy." <laughs> I know you were drunk uh, a lot. Uh, but Stephen, it was Stephen not King, cool. Stephen King claims he doesn't remember writing Cujo because yeah. he was he was so drunk and high on cocaine. Yeah, so listen. He's, he's been I, very, very frank about it. He has been very frank about it and people grow. Uh, so the idea of casting that uh, character with an actual person who belongs in that role uh, is a good thing to change. However, the original movie, which is basically just kind of an early X-Men riff, uh... It didn't have anything really to say. Like, the closest thing I could say getting out of that movie, like, what what's this movie about? Hmm. Is it's a movie about adults trying to impose their will on a child. It's yeah. about a parents who are trying to protect the child, but they're ultimately repressing her. It is about uh, people outside the child who want to weaponize her and uh, turn her into something that... <laughs> Mm. becomes what they want to do. It's all about raising a child mm. and how eventually your child will rebel against that. Well, and, and how in institutions infiltrate the family unit. Exactly. Uh, which, you know, it's not a lot, but at least there's something. This new Firestarter is about fuck all. Yeah. <laughs> it has so, nothing uh, on its mind and it's not it's, even, like, fun and silly. It's one of those things where it's all plot and, and no idea. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we're, we're getting introduced to... I was reminded of the film... Uh, um, mm. There were two superhero movies that came out sort of in the mid two thousand. One was called Push, and one, oh, yeah. and one was called Jumper. And yeah, these, I didn't these see were, Push. Uh, I saw Jumper. Though, these yeah. were two movies that tried to sort of introduce not just superhero characters, but an entire elaborate mythology where there's yeah. all these good guys and bad guys, secret and, organizations uh, that know about the existence of the superpowered people. Exactly, yeah. and like there are various organizations and people yeah. are drifting from organization. Impossible to follow. These th films are not good. Uh, Jumper is kind of fun just because there's good like teleportation special effects. There's a couple. Of, there's a fun fight between Hayden Christensen and Jamie, Jamie Bell, Bell yeah. where like they're in the middle of a desert and they're fighting, and then Jamie Bell disappears. And when he comes back, he's like driving a double decker bus from London into Hayden yeah, Christensen. Teleported and got That's one. That's kind of fun. There's some that, cool that stuff in that stuff movie. Yeah, fun. yeah. The best part yeah. of the movie Jumper, and you have to see it. There's a there's a special feature. Because Jumper was made by Doug Liman, and Doug Liman has a history of movies going over schedule, over budget, complete train wrecks that miraculously turn into pretty good films most of the time. Born Identity was like this. Before the Born Identity came out, everyone thought it was going to be the biggest train wreck of the year. They had massive reshoots. It was a whole thing. Jumper was like that, too. And Jamie Bell was constantly called to the set, waited there, Just in all, case, yeah. waited there all day, and did nothing. For day after day after day. And on one of the special features on the Blu-ray, which is surprisingly candid about this, Jamie Bell is just behind the scenes a lot. He's bored, he's bored, he's bored. And then because it's a teleportation movie and he's got like six body doubles to like be him like so over in the background when he teleports. Same height as him. They look the same yeah. and they're wearing the same costumes. Jamie Bell, whose breakout role was in Billy Elliot, decided to choreograph a dance routine with him and all of his doubles. <laughs> and it is amazing. It is the best thing to come out of that movie. Please see that bit. But anyway, uh, 
But uh, the problem with those movies is they're they're also all plot. There's yeah. like every other scene is this huge exposition dump about who mm. belongs to which system and what somebody's yeah. powers are. And I feel like this Firestarter, a remake, by the way, mm-hmm. takes way too much time explaining everything. So yeah. we get to see flashbacks to the dad. Dad is played by Zac Efron. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I forgot the actress who played the mom. Oh, look her up. Uh, I forget but her yeah, too. we get to see um, sort of video interviews when they're Sydney Lemon, and they're given their superpowers, or maybe their superpowers are just mm. being studied by the shop and how the shop was going to like suck out their yeah. brains or something evil. And they had a child and they ran away, and now they're on mm-hmm. the high. By the time we get to sort of the meat of the story, where there's like uh-huh. uh, they're finally uh, it's they've interacted with the shop. Yeah. The shop has like kidnapped uh, yeah, Zac da- Efron. Dad and, and daughter is kind of like on the lamb, and now yeah. we're going to sort of see explore what the this relationship is about the movie's we're half 10 over. minutes from the end yeah it's like, like it's almost it's, over like it's ridiculous yeah. um there's something that i think people need to understand about world building it's great that you've thought out your world it makes there's going to be internal logic it means you can set things up for later that's cool you cannot front load the exposition and assume we'll care yeah. We have to care about the characters and what they're doing on a personal level so that we want to know more. You can't just say, and here's a thousand years of history of jumpers. Mm. I don't give a shit. Introduce me to this guy. Let me care about his plight and then I'll want to know. But by the time you're done giving all that exposition, the movie's almost over. Mm-hmm. So I don't give a fuck. And this is and and a lot of dramatic is, things have happened at that point. Yeah. It's like, but it all feels like intro. It feels yeah. like the first episode. I was actually a little bit mm-hmm. uh, confused throughout this movie if this was a movie or if I accidentally like stumbled into a pilot episode. Yeah, because it feel a it's that like level of production. It's actually not really it's very cheap. slickly made. Like the the even like the CGI fire is re- is like really really like mm. it, it, it's like sub X Men movies. Yeah, like it's yeah. not great. Um. Yeah, it's it's cheap. The production design is really minimalist in a way that makes everything feel unlived in. The, the, the cinematography is depressing for some reason. Like everything's it's like, like really drab and colorless. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't get it at all. None of the action sequences have any action to it. Like the whole bit at the end where uh, the protagonist Charlie, played by Ryan Kira Armstrong, um, um, she plays the pirate kinetic girl. Um, She's just walking down empty hallways, and then occasionally a character we've never met before walks into the hallway and goes, oh no! And then she blows him up. And then two more show up, but now they're wearing fire-repellent stuff, and she still blows him up. And this goes on like that. I'm like, I don't care about any of this. Yeah, None of this matters. uh, Stephen King wrote Carrie prior to Firestarter. And I, and, and I think he was maybe trying to recreate that in a little bit. Because mm-hmm. both end with a bloodbath uh, enacted by a psychic young girl. Yeah. Uh, Carrie's adolescent, and mm-hmm. this girl is like maybe seven. Like she's very young. Pretty yeah. young. But yeah, the idea that it's, it's a, a younger person laying waste to the adult world. Mm-hmm. Uh, Carrie actually is about sort of her adolescence and her tortured upbringing and her repressive mm-hmm. mother and a lot mm-hmm. of religious repression. Uh, there's a lot of things going on in Carrie. Mm-hmm. There's almost the, nothing going on in Firestarter. No, the, this, to repeat myself, this is all about the plot. It's all about sort of the, the yeah. world and the setup and what's going on. And I think Stephen King thought out the shop and decided to write a story about the shop. And he had so yeah. much more in his mind about what was going on in the shop that he didn't well, really communicate it with the story. I, I've read the book, and it was a long time ago, but the thing I remember most was the relationship between uh, the father, Andy, and the daughter, Charlie. Mm-hmm. Um, and how he cares about her so much and will do anything to protect her, but he also knows that she's a loaded weapon. 
Right. And how that complicates their relationship. And it keeps them close, but it keeps them apart. And I feel like, you know, Zach Efron's trying here. You know, he's trying to, he's plays the he's dad. He's a fine he's, actor. He's good. He's actually good here. He's, the movie completely lets him down, but he's trying so hard mm-hmm. uh, to make this work. And I think he's doing a fine job and do not blame him for this. Um, but there's not enough material there of that relationship there's a lot of there's too many quiet moments. There's all these scenes that just every when they're finally like on the road together and we can build that relationship, we get like one scene of that and then we like cut to the person who runs this company talking to Kurtwood Smith for like ten minutes so they have some dialogue for the trailer that sounds oh, right. important. Kurtwood what Smith. a wasted what a waste of Kurtwood Smith. Like it, it's ridiculous. There's a scene, and this is content warning for the film. There's a scene with a cat, which if you're a cat lover, might be hard for you. Yeah. I will say this. I've never seen uh, uh, a movie with that kind of bit. Like this <laughs> like this bad. The CGI is bad. The the interaction, like the message he's trying to teach his daughter about it is, doesn't work. I don't want to get into details because it's unpleasant. But boy, does that scene not work. Firestarter and Carrie and some of Stephen King's other material... They have a lot in common with superhero stories. But the way Stephen King suggests that someone having these superpowers the way Stephen King writes them having a superpower would be horrifying yes the dead zone is someone about it's about someone with superpowers but it's horrifying for him and it leads to moral Mm. dilemmas that destroy him Carrie's about a young girl who has superpowers and how yeah when people push her too far because of abuse and repression she lashes out and those powers are shocking and terrible uh, Firestarter is the closest he's got to an actual X-Men story <laughs> and unfortunately the movie doesn't have fun with that nor does it do anything to dispel that and clarify no this is a horror movie Yeah, it's just nothing it has no ideas it has no themes I, I, Michael Grey Eyes is good as the character of Rainbird but they give him a lot less to do than George C. Scott did he's barely in the second half uh, and they tried to turn him into a really generic like badass character. Yeah, that's, it's a know. real bummer. Like, it, 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 yeah, it's much more interesting character than that. The movie sucks. Oh, it's quite bad. It's one of the very worst Stephen King adaptations, and I've seen them all. <laughs> you I did have an article, I did an article for the rap. I've seen every theatrically released Stephen King movie, uh, and uh, man, yeah, this is right near the. It's not. It's not the worst. That's still the Mangler. Oh, I like the Mangler. Mangler is, Mangler is <laughs> I like the shit. Mangler because it's so crazy. The Mang- I wish it was fun crazy. Uh-huh. Instead, I think it's just incompetent crazy. Okay. But I appreciate why you like it. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, this is just a whole lot of nothing. There, there are some... Uh, I've, I've seen all of the uh, Children of the Corn sequels. There's like yeah. 10 of those. Well, I didn't see all the sequels to that, but those stopped being Stephen King adaptations a long time ago. I suppose so. But but only, and uh, only the first two were theatrically released. That's true. So I'm, I'm off the hook there. But you ought to see Urban Harvest. Screaming Mad George I, created uh, I, Hugh Hawks Brand the Rose in that one. Okay, that's now that's a selling point. That's cool. One of these days I'm going to watch all the Children of the Corn sequels. That, I've seen a few, <laughs> but I've never seen all of them. There's like two and a half good ones in the whole series. <laughs> Wait, there's that many? There, there's about I don't even think the first two are any good. No, the first one's not that great. No, second, the second one's okay. Third one's okay. And that's kind of where it stops. Okay. I, and I liked the, uh, the fifth one. 
That's the, the one with, with Alexis Arquette. The most exciting one for me that I've seen is uh, Children of the Corn Genesis, which I think is like seven or eight. Oh, where they used uh, unused footage from uh, Michael Bay film. Okay, this is the weirdest <laughs> fucking thing ever. There's a this movie, Children of the Corn Genesis, which is this rock cheap Children of the Corn movie where about like two people, their car break down, they end up on a farm, and there's a child of the corn there, and it's bad. Uh, in order to add production value, they acquired some unused car chase footage from Bad Boys 2, the part where the bad guys are like, Throwing cars at the cop oh, car. I, I heard it was from the island. No, but, no, 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 okay. no. It's from Bad Boys Two. Bad Boys Two. And um, so there's a scene where the bad boys are chasing the batter boys, and the batter boys are throwing cars at their cop car. In order to make the footage work, the script has to bend over backwards to put our heroes in a cop car and then get them to a place where there's traffic because it takes place on a farm. <laughs> and then yeah, so just all of a sudden we're in this scene from Bad Boys Two. Except Will Smith and Martin Lawrence aren't there. Nobody talks about it. I assume because nobody saw the movie. But it's surreal. To just all of a sudden cut to footage of Bad Boys 2 in your action movie. As if nobody (laughs) saw Bad Boys 2. Which was one of the biggest hit movies of the early 2000s. Yeah, that's the worst Stephen King adaptation. Wow. Counts. Yeah, it counts. It counts. I can't fight but it too hard. His name is on it. He didn't sue to have his name taken off that one. I think one. he wanted it to. I think he just got stuck with that. Uh, anyway, we should move on. We should move uh, on. Uh, let's talk about another horror movie. This one's in theaters this weekend. This is the latest film from Alex Garland, who previously directed the films Ex Machina, which won an Academy Award for Visual Effects, and Annihilation, starring Natalie Portman. This is a film called Men. And it stars recent Oscar nominee Jesse Buckley. As a uh, woman yeah. who rents a, a, a big old house <coughs> in the English countryside, uh, and it turns out that all the men there are super creepy. They're uh, and they're all the same man. That's yeah. that's the supernatural element to this. Um, she has a, a tragic backstory. She's getting over a really uh, traumatic event that she just lived through with her ex husband. Her ex husband is now dead, and uh, that's all I'm going to say. Yeah, the movie doesn't play coy, but why ruin? There's not too much plot to yeah, it. So um, why? Why? Yeah. But yeah, she's renting from. Uh, renting this cabin in the woods and it's per- it's not a cabin it's like this pretty big estate like it's a, a, a multiple room mansion where yeah. like the, the old guard used to live she's she's splurging she's trying yeah. to like put her life together and she's doing something nice for herself and so she's renting this really really nice place and, uh, and her landlord is played by an actor named Rory Kinnear you might remember him from the imitation game or some of the more recent yeah. James Bond movies he played uh, one of Bond's uh, co-workers at yeah, MI6 yeah. Um, a very good actor. Very, very good actor. And uh, yeah, he's just kind of a creepy guy. And, uh, you know, kind, kind of funny, kind of self-deprecating, but also kind of creepy and a little too intrusive with his questions. Mm-hmm. And she's willing to write that off. And then gradually, she she either she notices, but it's so subtle, she maybe she thinks they're all related or whatever, or she doesn't notice. Uh-huh. All the men in this town are played by Rory Kinnear. Mm, it- all of them. Yeah, the local vicar, the local cop, mm-hmm. the guys in the bar, they're all Rory Kinnear. A child who yeah, which is, is his CGI face, which is not very convincing. Well, I, it's, it's a it's, little creepy. It's, but I it's, think the, the not very convincing adds to the effect in terms of the child. I will give you that. The child is that. supposed to be a little creepy. I will give you that, but and, I wonder uh, I wonder if it would have been creepier if it actually had been convincing and you actually yeah, wonder how they did that. 
Uh, there's a really long, kind of scary sequence where uh, she's just on a walk in the woods and uh, she sees a shadowy figure at the end of this long tunnel Yeah, it starts running toward her and we don't even know, it's clearly Rory Kinnear, but we don't know who it is. Yeah, And she like, which ends up getting lost in the woods and she ends up running around uh, this naked man. Yeah. Sort of like... In a field. This weird druidic looking figure who's yeah. got like plants on his body. Yeah, yeah, just sort of standing out in a field, and that figure, this druidic figure, begins stalking her. Yeah. Uh, and her sojourns out into the world, not only does it bring up a lot of the trauma that she's been going through, but it starts evoking a lot of ancient misogynist imagery. And there's a, like a, a, a baptismal font in a, a Catholic church that is mm. a very important symbol in this movie. And uh, over the course of the movie... I mean, given the title of the film and the premise, you can see that this is going to be a, a dissection of misogyny. And it's pretty clear yeah. early on what uh, Alex Garner is doing here. It's exceptionally uh, it's clear early on. Some, like, it, it, oh, things, like the first yeah. thing she does when she goes to this like house is, is picks an apple off a tree. A tree and bites it's it, yeah. not a subtle film. So look, Eden imagery, got it. Yes, yeah. it's, it's not a subtle film at all. Uh, and at some point along the way, it tips from something that feels weirdly supernatural into just nightmare territory. Yeah, it's, it's like it's, everything it's, is completely it, supernatural. It's no longer vaguely menacing and something's clearly off, but mm. actual threats of violence. Like there's actual and, monsters yeah. in the movie. And about the second point. half of the movie, last third of the movie, mm. is like one horrific yeah. night, basically. Uh, there's, there's a lot of really cool stuff in that horrific night. Yep. Uh, some of it goes on a little bit too long. It's like, okay... Uh, now it's getting a little bit ridiculous. It's starting to be. It, it goes from genuinely creepy. I haven't seen that before. To you've done it literally five times around in the last two minutes, mm. and it's now getting laughable. Yeah, yeah which yeah. is not um, what you should be going for. I think in this context, I uh, I dug men. Yeah, I liked it. I like I like these sort of art house freakout essays that mm-hmm. certain kind, certain directors get into. I was reminded very much of a mother, the Darren Aronofsky movie. Okay. Uh, in that, yeah, okay, we get the imagery uh, early on, and he's getting really blunt with it, but we don't see this kind of art house freak out in theaters a lot, except from a select few. And I like when uh, filmmakers are getting a little bit ambitious with their uh, toxic messages, no matter how mm. obvious it is. There's something kind of adolescent about it, but also something very admirable. Mm. And I, I, I don't think I think this is the least of the three Alex Garner films I've seen. I agree with that. Uh, but I still dug it. I did like a lot of that nightmare stuff. I think he do- he's, does really, really well with that kind of nightmare tone. His films are very subdued. They're very slow moving. He tends to ring dread out of like long shots of people just walking down a pathway. He's very good at building dread. I will yeah. say that right now. The first half of this movie where nothing overt has happened yet. Like There's still yeah. like some plausible deniability here. or Maybe it's not what we think is going to happen. The, the setup is super duper creepy. Yeah. I, for me, I think it loses its way once it actually kicks in. Once it actually is like, oh, right, we're a horror movie. We got to do some horror stuff. Because, as you said yourself, it's 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 blunt. Yeah. Uh, and I appreciate that it is trying to crack open something. I appreciate that it's got a... Unlike Firestarter, it definitely has something on its mind. No one can oh, pretend otherwise. Sure. <laughs> what I would argue, though, is that what the film has on its mind is a huge fucking can of worms. And it doesn't actually do much with it. Yeah. I think oh, yeah. it, I think the the overall feeling of portent and dread and the sort of uh, uh, juxtaposition of this ancient misogynistic imagery uh, to sort of contextualize contemporary misogyny in particular through her marriage, but also through just through every man she meets, particularly men in authority, uh, priests, mm-hmm. cops, that kind of thing. Uh, that's heavy, but the actual content of the movie is thin. 
I think ultimately it adds up to very frustratingly little. And although there's definitely creepy bits in it, it feels a lot like Much Ado About Nothing to me. I feel like there's a couple of images I've never seen before. Oh, that's for sure. (laughs) I'll give you that. But you know what I didn't need? Hmm. Fucking blunt dialogue explaining what it means. Yeah. Like, there's a bit at the end where it's like, you see, this meant this, and this meant this. And I'm like, yeah. Hmm. Guess what? Only, like, five things happen in this movie. It's really easy to connect those dots. It would have felt a little bit more profound if it were condensed to, like, like a Tales from the Crypt episode, if they kind of put it all in one. Yeah, that would have been stronger. Like, 30 minutes. Um but I still appreciate all of that time he took to sort of establish all of it. And I love Jesse Buckley. I think she's, oh, she's wonderful. Great. The cast um, is good. Yeah. And, no, and, no, and, no one's pretending and Rory, the cast Yeah, Rory Kinnear in multiple really roles is really, really wonderful. Yeah, that, he's given a lot of interesting performance work here. Yeah, the, the, the teenage kid and, like, that weird uh, sort of earth creature. Uh, those, those are, like, yeah. good, scary images. Very scary images. I'll give you that. I th- again, I think it's a good setup. Mm. Uh, and again, horror movies are allowed to be blunt. It's an opportunity oh, for yeah. us to explore some uncomfortable, messy things yeah, within yeah. ourselves and within society. And I'm no, not yeah. saying it did it, it. It picked the wrong material. What I am saying is that I don't think it came to any. I don't get anything interesting with it in the end. Yeah, I think I wanna... it's the setup is interesting, but when, we, when it, at the end of the movie, when the movie has more or less told you everything it is, it's just sort of like, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah obviously the, yeah. The choir and also and, and, um, and I, yeah. there's a bit the bit for me that really ruins it is unfortunately really spoilery but right. there is a bit towards the end there's sort of a sort of a reveal sort of a callback uh, involving a bit of casting which adds a layer of context to this story that I either Alex Garland didn't think out or worst case scenario he did and it's not healthy, and not yeah, and yeah. not even in a horror. I realize horror movies don't have to be healthy, but I do think there's an element of responsibility to them. And when your message can be a gross message, or at least even potentially with hmm. the with a with a halfway reasonable read, I think that's worthy of criticism. Yeah, I, and I think I, I there's a bit at the end that just does not work for me. I, I know what you're getting at, and I yeah. I, I think uh, it it was. Thought, thought out in a tactful sort of way, but it does also have a bad read to it, um, yeah. which, which is unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, I I wish more uh, horror filmmakers were this ambitious, though. Even even with a, a weak message, yeah. a thin message, you call it, uh, I I still think it's an important message. I, I, I think there's still still some meat to it. I think it's I okay know. to repeat. I'm and, seeing uh, horror filmmakers be this ambitious now, though. I, I think people like Ari Aster yeah. or Jordan Peele have... A, shown that this kind of thematically ambitious horror, oh. even if the plots are derivative, let's not, let's not pretend Get Out doesn't owe a lot to Stepford Wives or Midsommar mm-hmm. doesn't owe a lot to The Wicker Man, but like these thematically ambitious horror movies have an audience, and I think we're seeing more people attempt them. Yeah. But that doesn't mean they're all going to be equally good, and I don't think Men is quite there. I, I, I think, I it's, wish... I think it's, it's clearly very impressively well put together. Mm. And there's, a, there's a tweet I did after I saw it, um... A lot of people wondering what I was talking about, uh, where I talked about how it is entirely possible to tell a bad story well. Oh, all the time. Yeah, yeah you can. Again, I think, if, but I, if, that, if that's cor- the well, thing. I, I, this is where we disagree. I think yeah. the story is a fine one to tell. Yeah. Even if it's not uh, delving in ter- terribly deep into something that other films have done better. Uh, I wanted to call it Antichrist Junior uh, because it's <laughs> it's dealing with a lot of similar themes as yeah. uh, Lars von Trier's film, but. Alex Garland doesn't go as hard as Lars von Trier. Well, I think that's so. Part of the so fil- few filmmakers do, and yeah. uh, so by the time you get to uh, Antichrist, you've been like punched in the face multiple times sure. by some really horrendous imagery. 
this has some good horrendous imagery as well. There's a few, there's a few really creepy bits, I'm not gonna um, lie. A, a lot of uh, blood and genital imagery in in this yeah. movie. Uh, but by the time you get to the end, the end of Antichrist, you kind of see, oh wait, this does come from like a deeply misogynist tradition that stretches back to the the mm. dawn of humanity. Yeah, and that's something else that uh, Alex Garland is going for, but he's not pushing quite as hard. He's trying exactly to sort of do slow drag. Exactly and... my point. I feel like he's it, the presentation is so is so much the focus. That the fact that underneath <coughs> that presentation, underneath all that gloss, underneath all of that great setup and creepy ideas about casting over with Rory Kinnear, which is another thing that I don't think actually tracks when you find out everything the movie's about, but... Um, yeah, it, it tracks fine. I, I disagree, but yeah, we have to go into spoilers. Um, I feel like ultimately he let the premise just be like pretty blunt and superficial and didn't really think that out and thought out all of the, the stuff on top of it. Mm. And but unfortunately, the thing that it's on top of is kind of rote for me, and I just yeah. feel like, and I know Alex Garland has more interesting ideas in him. We've seen it, yeah. yeah. So for me, this feels like I I half baked the story, but I tried to kill it with the presentation and compensate for that. Hmm. And I feel like in the end, it's the story that kills it. I'm not interested in it. I think he doesn't have enough to say right. to justify making something that simple. The premise he has here, I don't think he has enough to say about. It. Hmm. So, but we disagree on this. One. I, I can appreciate. I, I still dug it. I, I like. Yeah. I like when uh, when a filmmaker tries the there, way the way they tried in this movie. There were definitely yeah. some moments in the audience where they're like, Nyah-ha! yeah, yeah, because there's some moments, and I appreciate that. Speaking of, yeah, uh-huh. uh, there's a horror movie everyone was talking about. I didn't get a chance to see mm. on Shutter, but you saw it. Yes, called The Sadness. <laughs> Is the sadness a good double feature with men? Oh golly! Speaking of going hard, um, the sadness goes hard. I live for the day that someone tells me Dibs didn't have to go that hard, but he did. <laughs> he did that for us. Alas, I have not yet. Yeah, Rob, Rob Jabaz, the writer-director of The Sadness, did it for us. Um, this is a Taiwanese film about a rage virus. Um, it's... Uh, I love that you don't need to go beyond that. It's just, you know, one of those rage viruses. Uh, it's it's kind of a subgenre unto its own. Yeah. It's, uh, it's not a zombie film, but there is a virus going it's around. It's close enough the, for uh, government work. Like, it's definitely in the, in the, in the family. Yeah, the opening scenes are about a young couple. They're living together. Uh, she has been looking forward to a vacation, and he's forgotten about it and has arranged sort of a work trip at the same time, and they have a, a, a little bit of tension between them as they part for the day. There's a virus raging around the world that people don't believe in. This is a common thing we're seeing in movies now. Uh, but and we the, can't complain about that plot point. Nope. We can't it's complain that that's illogical. Now. Yeah. Uh, but the virus is something that uh, infects your brain and essentially turns off all your morality and ups your uh, violent instincts. So you become a violent, ultra-sexual sadist. And you mm. just want to hurt people because now it's fun for you. Yeah. When you're infected. And uh, spreads really quick. And people start torturing each other in the street. And ripping their clothes off in the street. And getting blood all over everything in the street. And, ah, uh, nothing gets blood out. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's about how these... This, <laughs> Sorry. The, the central plot is about how these two people who are separated across the city have to sort of work their way across the countryside encountering increasingly horrible things as they try to reunite. Right. Uh, common zombie movie kind of stuff. Uh, so the bulk of the film is just the horrible things they encounter. Uh, the young woman uh, is on a subway train being accosted by an older man. Uh, and wouldn't you know it, he gets infe- infected by this rage virus mm-hmm. and uh, 
kind of turns into one of the villains of the piece as he tries to stalk her and get her. The scary thing about this is, unlike zombie movies, the people aren't mindless. They actually know what they're doing, and they're just taking a lot of glee in it. Okay, so it's kind of like the crazies, then. Yeah, a little bit more like the crazies. Okay. Uh, yeah, so everybody's just completely insane, and yeah. golly, some of the acts of violence and sexual violence and horror and blood in this movie are pretty harrowing. Uh, there are buckets of blood in this thing. Uh, it's kind of funny that I saw the sadness at the same time there was this debate online as to whether or not Doctor Strange was a little bit too rough for the PG-13 <laughs> rating. Like, this has, like, people's genitals being severed and, you know, orgies of blood and, you know, Horrible mm. things happening into eye sockets. Uh, yeah, this this has it all. <laughs> I feel like I feel like we've we've we, there was a time, and I don't mean to be like when I was a kid, but, mm. but like there was a time when movies were way more sexual and violent mm. than we're used to now, and so things that would have been very tame in like 1989 are considered wholly inappropriate. By the target demographic they're trying to reach, mm. which is odd. I've heard it put this way, that a lot of people have internalized the Hayes Code. That yeah. this idea that rough material doesn't belong in films anymore. And yeah, we don't people need are kind that. of eschewing yeah. them. Uh, the, the debate that comes up like four times a year about whether or not uh, mm. sex scenes are important in movies. They are. They are. I mean, you don't, you don't always need them, but you need them when you need them. Like I always any tool need them. <laughs> oh, my point is that you, you, it's like any tool in a toolbox. That's yeah. like saying, hey, I'm sick and tired of movies that have a scene in a bar. Yeah, well, well is, is it is it important to the plot that it be in a bar? I don't know. Sometimes I'm, I'm sick of it. fucking action sequences. I guess yeah. there's no talk someone about put, that. I, I wish I remember who it was, but someone was talking online. It was underneath this thing, and it's like, yeah, okay. How many car chases are actually important to the plot? You mm-hmm. could totally write another way around the car chase in yeah, the yeah. Batman. You totally, you could totally have done that another way. You didn't need that. Why yeah. is that there? The movie wanted it. No, no that can no, be uh, enough. No extended superhero fight is necessary yeah. to the plot. It's just a yeah. little bit of mayhem. To we, we don't need musical bit. numbers in our musicals, do we? It's 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 part of the fun of it. That being said, sex can actually absolutely yeah. do reveal things about character and, uh, and set things up for later and establish relationships. You know, we, and we were uh, it can be very important. Yeah. We, we were talking about how men uh, is using horror to sort of say something. Um, yeah. It's also very important to acknowledge that horror is meant to horrify. It is. It's meant to shock and repel. It's supposed to and, activate uh, things in you that are so, uncomfortable. Uh, something like the sadness. And I appreciate that it's called the sadness and not the rage because this is actually a grand tragedy that people have just sort of succumbed to their rage. Yeah. Uh, and it's meant to shock and horrify you and look in yourself and see, wait, what kind of dark impulses would I really be capable of if there were just no moral code in my brain anymore? Mm, yeah. If it just switched off, would I be okay murdering a stranger on the street and doing horrible things to their body? So, um, and yeah, and that sounds like an exciting horror film, but let me, let me ask you a question because I'm a little hazy on it. Um, what, in what form does this horror movie take? Is this like trapped in a house, the world is horrible, on the run, being chased? Like, what, it, what, what sort of vibe are you expecting when you actually get into the meat of the experience? It, it's, it's world gone mad. So it's okay. like going from set piece to set piece, whereas these two characters mm. are traveling, like, like I said, they're traveling across uh, the city trying mm. to get back to each other. Okay. And uh, as they go along, they encounter little pockets of people who have been infected and the horrible things they're doing to one another. Mm. Um, there's this idea, of course, that there's salvation. That's been, like, a really frustrating thing about, like, zombie movies. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, no, we're going to go to this one place where it's safe. The, the really? island. Everything's safe on the island. H- how about just no? Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
clearly this has overrun the world. This is your. This is everything. Go, going to an island, it's not going to help you. It's the world's still at an end here. Yeah. What are you going to die like a little bit more slowly there? Well, I'll take it. I suppose so. <laughs> it's a fair point. Um, okay. L- last thing before we move on, because I'm I, the, one more thing. I'm a little hazy on. Hmm. Is this a movie to be enjoyed, or is this kind of like a gauntlet? Well, there's uh, there was a trend. I think a, a lot of these movies came out in the early two thousands, like sort of the hmm. you could call them the post nine eleven horror movies, where uh, like the blood and the gore and the torture just was hmm. ratcheted way up. Yeah, for a, a couple of years, it was very visceral for a while. There, yeah. You know? um, this is a throwback to that. If okay. you liked those sort of insanely painful, really yeah. bloody, ultra-violent horror movies. Hostel, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake, stuff yeah, like the, that. This yeah. this is one of those. And I think it does a lot of those a little bit better just because oh. it is that much more shocking. All right. uh, I, I haven't seen the Hostel movies, but I've seen a couple of the torture films. Okay. And uh, this is like a lot less calculating. This is just in blood and insanity throughout. And uh, it's exhilarating. It's difficult, but it is exhilarating. It is horrifying. And uh, that's what it's going for. So, yeah. Top hole, go for it. Fair enough. Uh, next up is another film you saw that I didn't called. Is it the pleasure or just pleasure? It's just called pleasure. Pleasure, which um, uh, interesting double feature with sadness, sadness and pleasure. They're cops. <laughs> pleasure Mismatched is a, cops on ple- the beat. Ple- pleasure is not a horror movie. It's a very okay. different movie. Um, pleasure, uh, written and directed by a Swedish filmmaker named Ninja Tyberg, uh, stars. Um, Sophia Kappel, who plays a, a Swedish emigre who's come to America, to break into the porn industry. Okay. Uh, she wants to be the next big porn star. And this is a very unflinching, uh, very forward look at uh, modern porn production, the way it is today. Mm. Uh, what uh, the young performers need to do, the women, and uh, what essentially what they have to endure, the awkwardness of filming a sex scene. Yeah. Uh, the, f- the first thing that they're going through is just like a list, of, like this really dry list of all of the sex acts she'd be willing to do before she signs her contract. Sure. Uh, contracts are signed on camera just to show that people aren't being coerced. Right. Uh, so there's all this careful things being done to protect people, but at the same time, open things done to exploit them. Mm. Uh in fact, uh, because she wants to be noticed, this this young character. Uh, let me look up the the character's name. Uh, it was like Cherry Cherry Bella Cherry is her name. Okay, that's that's her stage name. Yeah, I figured. Uh, she uh, wants to be noticed, uh, so she's able to sort of get her way into like some porn parties in the valley. Yeah, uh, but she doesn't have a lot of experience. How do you get noticed at these sort of porn parties? Uh, she roommates with other people who are also trying to break into the adult industry. Some people have been in the adult industry for a while, and they're just sort of making ends meet. And uh, this film is very, very good about showing what a boring grind making porn is. <laughs> yeah, like this is you're sitting it's still around a movie. sets a lot. You're still, you know, most of a movie. A lot of awkward staging. I don't care what it's kind of movie you've made for anybody there. I don't care what kind of movie you've made. Ninety uh, percent of any day in a movie set, you're unless you're actively like. Moving lights or wires or things, oh. you're sitting around. Yeah, and, uh, it's actually really boring. A lot there, of the there was a, there was an introduction from the actor, the lead actress, and the director saying, "Okay, what a lot of what you're going to see is pretty rough in this movie, but I want you to know that everything was really safe, and I'm okay. I'm, look, I'm okay mm. uh, because uh, in order to be noticed, Bella Cherry uh, wants to uh, d- do sort of like something a little bit more extreme. She says, "Give me something extreme. I, I'm willing to do that." And the first thing, uh, extreme gig she gets hooked up with is a kink shoot, okay. which is she's like uh, tied up and dangled from the ceiling and whipped yeah. with, you know, like leather straps. And uh, on that shoot, uh, kink porn, by the way, 
the most responsible porn you're going to find. Oh, they have to be. Uh, yeah. They have to be super, super responsible. So there's a lot of people around to make sure she's okay. They tell her exactly yeah. what she's going to go through, like specifically act by mm-hmm. act, what she's going to do. Are you going to be okay with this? Here are your safe words. This is how we stop. Yeah. And it's a really pleasant experience doing this sort of like extreme kink thing. So she goes back to her agent, this guy that she just met, like her first day of shooting, and says, give me more extreme stuff. Her next shoot, completely the opposite. Uh, She's just in a room with these two guys and they're essentially just abusing her for hours. And uh, the director is really, like does all this really clever thing where um, she does like a sort of a hard cut to after her porn shoot, before we see the end of the porn shoot. So it looks like she got made out of it okay, but then she keeps cutting back and you're not sure if she's okay even after the fact. Yeah. So it's kind of like as a little bit of a double bluff. Yeah. Uh, and how that kind of porn is not regulated. There's a lot of unethical porn that's made out there. Mm-hmm. Do you know where your, dear listener, do you know where your porn comes from? Do you know who made it? Do you know what studio put it out? You probably don't. In fact, a lot of the porn you're getting is probably you're just getting for free. You're not paying mm-hmm. for it. Nobody's getting any money for that. Uh, a lot of porn production really is unethically produced. And I think Pleasure is trying to point that out. What a, a boring grind this is, how much danger there still is in the porn world, mm-hmm. and how uh, how how much uh, ambition and aspiration it takes to put yourself in a position where you're actually making any kind of money from it. Yeah, The bigger porn stars, for every like one big porn star you've heard of, there's hundreds of people who are really ambitious and just didn't make it. Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. And... and the, the adult entertainment industry in, in, in cinema has gone through a lot of changes mm. uh, over the years. Uh, and um, the way that streaming, you know, the, a lot of those like YouTube but for porn mm. type sites, the way that those have put like a stranglehold on I, the industry. I think, there, I think there's one called YouPorn and one yeah. called PornTube. So yeah. there you go. And to, to name but a few. Um, and, and then there's Porn Porn. Yeah, those, the, the ready availability of just clips on those websites have meant that studios that were actually responsible for like putting, you know, films, uh-huh. like actual like narratives and releasing these things and kind of treating them like real movies. <clears throat> that's almost dead. There's yeah, almost well, none of that gets done anymore. Yeah, And, and, and what, so the so whole what, industry is just shifted into this weird, more like proto. Well, what um, it is, yeah. it's, it's, it's uh, what pleasure points out is that it's the gig economy now Yeah, where everybody's just sort of their own independent producer. Yeah. They, there's not really a lot of agents or studios. They're going to bolster you a unless lot, you just happen to get a lot in of people the right are making people. the majority of their money doing stuff like OnlyFans. Yeah. Like, like, they're not even and, necessarily and doing the movies. That's a big part of her career is yeah. she's like taking pictures of herself. Yeah. There's also like little cute details. Like how do you pose correctly yeah. for like a, a, like a quote, sexy pose. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, you're not, like, thrusting your hip out enough. And, you know, like, those kind of mechanics are actually kind of amusing. And mm-hmm. a lot of it is really amusing, but also a lot of it is just really horrendously hard hard work. Yeah. Uh, Pleasure is excellent at demystifying the modern porn industry. Okay. It really looks at it. It, it of course, is really rough. It has a lot of, you know, mm-hmm. actual porn footage in it. Yeah. Uh, the lead actress uh, does not have any unsimulated sex on camera. Okay. Uh but there's also a lot of boners. Uh, yeah. So okay. uh, they're, they're going to be really upfront about it as this is, you know, very NC-17 rated. Well, I appreciate that it sounds frank. But yeah, it, it doesn't sound like it was created just to demonize no, or just to vaunt. 
it's or not, just to venerate. It's not to, like, to it's not, venerate or vaunt. It actually is, yeah, yeah, really just this kind of frank look at okay. what porn looks like now. Right. It demystifies porn. Uh, and because porn has changed so much, we're not getting that message a lot right. anymore. And when we don't talk about that industry the way we talk about almost any other entertainment industry unless you mm. really follow it. Yeah. Like a lot of people, maybe they know a couple of names of people who are mm. they, they are fans of, but they couldn't tell you about what this studio is up to right now. Or yeah, what's, so. you know, so like having something that sort of illuminates that part of the industry for people mm. who otherwise know next to nothing about it sounds like a good thing. Yeah, I didn't yeah. see it. I hopefully it's good, but it sounds like you yeah. liked it. Okay. I, I did. I liked okay. it a lot. There's there's a few cliched moments where it's like, oh, will will she sell out her friend or not? And uh, th- that feel a little bit corny, sort of in the broad texture yeah. of this otherwise realistic movie. But yeah. um, but it's still really very good, and yeah, okay. all, all of its honesty and demystification works really well. Got it. All right. Well, the next film that I saw. Uh, not, not much of a segue, sadly. <laughs> uh, is a film called Mondo Kane, which has nothing to do with the Mondo movie. With the Mondo, but there's a film from I think 1962, the early 1960s, called Mondo Kane, which was something of a shockumentary, and it was all about how first, all of these places, yeah. all of these places all around the world, are doing wild stuff, and we're going to show it on on this film, and it was all very salacious and frankly irresponsible, and it led to a whole wave of documentaries that are basically just like, won't you believe the fucked up shit we found? Yeah, I, it, and they're called Mondo Movies, after yeah. Mondo Kane. Yeah. Um, I, I, I've seen Mondo Kane, I've seen Mondo New York, I've seen a few other, uh, Faces yeah. of Death is technically a Mondo yep, movie. Yep, a lot of those, a lot of uh, these things are also, a lot of these things are staged. Oh, Faces of Death, mostly staged. Yeah. Uh, like, there's some real death on that, and it's... it's yeah pretty sick but that's it's meant to cater to that yeah that's they, uh, they, they tell you what it is on the tip yeah. they, they they're telling you. but uh, in any case i guess the title just sort of filtered down and the title well it, uh, mean, it means uh a dog's world yeah exactly and so but here they they didn't have to call this new one mondo connie it has nothing to do with that movie they could have called it anything uh this is a futuristic near future near future but not really but kind of um it's the near future Society has at least partly collapsed. Environmental disasters have destroyed everything. And in Italy, uh, there is now uh, a weird bifurcated society where people either live in this contamination zone where there's no work, feral children running around, and there's this evil Fagin-type guy Hmm. called Hothead, and he recruits children to be part of his army of thieves and killers. Uh... And on the other side of a big fancy fence, and they're like right next to each other, (laughs) you could swim there from the beach, Uh, there is a fancy society where uh, everyone lives in like this really fancy resort and everything's really nice, but also like the the children are like doing manual labor in like a steel mill and shit, but they also get to- This is sci-fi Oliver Twist. Kind of. And then they also, but they also get to do calisthenics on the beach in the fancy place. I'm not entirely sure- Hmm. Where that they don't really get into that. All right. Um, the protagonists are two kids who live in the contaminated zone, and they quickly develop uh, nicknames. One of whom, uh, one of them, in order to join this gang, uh, burns down a pet store, and uh, the pet store was called Dog World, oh, so yeah, he yeah, becomes yeah. known as Dog World. Yeah. And uh, and then his friend is epileptic and has seizures, and he unfortunately earns the name Piss Pants because oh, everyone's an asshole in oh. the future. Um, they join this gang, and then uh, it basically becomes every crime movie you've ever seen about two kids who go into crime. 
Oh, one of them, one of them jumps into a city of God, that kind of thing. city yeah. of God, mean streets. One of them jumps into the deep end. Another one is like trying to get out or, or they, they turn on each other and betray each other. Will they get out? Won't they get out? Uh, and, uh, meanwhile, there's a little girl in the, in the fancy side of town who just wants to go into the shitty side of town so you can visit the graves of her parents. And, um, she does. Okay. Yeah, it doesn't really add up to anything there. This is the thing about Mondo Kane that's really frustrating. The story itself, remove all of the artifice. You've got a story about uh, children growing up in a terrible place with no opportunities and they join a gang and it goes bad. Mm-hmm. You don't need sci-fi to tell that. <laughs> but you also need to understand that that story has been told many times and <clears throat> if you're going to do it, you need to do something interesting with it. And it feels like the sci-fi trappings are what they decided to do that was interesting with it. Problem is, the sci-fi trappings are not important. Uh, the world in that in which they inhabit, where, uh, oh, there are sterilization squads going into the contaminated zone. Cool, is that going to be important later? No. Ah! Like, it'd just be a good, interesting piece of world building. It's not, though. Right. <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't do anything right up to anything. Uh, the fact that... Uh, you know, everyone lives on this like kind of resort in this kind of like Logan's Run kind of area. Are we gonna find out any more about that? Are we gonna develop that thematically or in the plot? No. Hmm. Uh, are we going to talk about how this dystopia works and what its values are? No. Uh, so this is basically just about a guy who takes a bunch of runaway kids and forms a gang. Yeah. Did That's we need twist? Yeah. Did we, yeah. Did we need sci-fi to do that? Hell no. I mean, Are we adding anything sci- sci-fi to sci-fi Oliver Twist is interesting. But there's hardly any sci-fi. There's almost nothing right. to it. You could mm. you could take out all the references to this being like dystopian or post-apocalyptic. Uh-huh. And there's only like a couple of things in the movie you'd have to explain. Huh. Like why the little girl has this like tracking bracelet on her or why a car has an autopilot function. Hmm. Like that's it. There's like two or three things in the movie that are even noteworthy in that they're sci-fi elements. So it just feels like we just did Oliver Twist, but not very good, and we changed the setting, but not very much. And well, then yeah. what little we had to say, we did so very bluntly. Like, oh hey, uh, which kid is the one who's going to like become like fanatically devoted to uh, the the leader of the child gang? Is it the one who carries around a crucifix for half the film until he meets <laughs> the guy and then drops it and then follows that guy instead? Ah, subtle hmm. and and well told. It's there's not much. There's just nothing to it. Yeah, well, it's I, frustrating because there's clearly some good stuff here. The guy who plays Hothead. I'm gonna look up his name. He's a really good actor. Alessandro Borghi. Hmm. Cool. He's actually like okay. a really really good actor. He he captivates the screen. But um, yeah, there's nothing to it. Hmm. There's, there's no selling point. I can't tell you like. Well, just uh, transposing Oliver Twist uh, is fine, even if you're not gonna do much with the setting. Uh, just telling that story in a new setting is fine. They do that with Shakespeare all the time. Doesn't mean it's done well, uh, though. Well, yeah, it's the not very good part that, I, <laughs> yeah. that gives me a little bit of trepidation. That's the thing. Like, there's certain movies where I don't recommend them, but I can explain them to you in such a way that if they're made for you, you'll recognize that, and maybe you'll enjoy it more than I did. Hmm. I don't know who this is made for. I really don't. The the young cast is good. Uh-huh. Uh huh. The the movie looks like it was like filtered through urine. Like it's just <laughs> it's just one of those movies where everything is tinged yellow and it does nothing any favors. And I wish to God movies would stop doing this so often. Like oh it's it's a shitty here. Cool. What's it gonna be? Yellow. Yellow or greenish or sometimes greenish, so, but usually yellow. Some people yellow. have uh, 
and and this is just like a, a really kind of horrendously racist trope that, yeah. that finds its way into a lot of movies. Uh, if you look at American films that are set in Mexico, uh-huh. there's a Mexico filter. You'll notice yeah. it, it's either kind of brown or kind of mm. greeny yellow. I, th- I think uh, traffic helped codify that. Yeah, and yeah. traffic did that because they were, had all of these different uh, narratives, and they wanted to make sure that you knew at a glance which narrative you were yeah, so in. So color coded like, it. There's the so blue like, story, the red story, and the yellow story. Exactly, yeah. and uh, the yellow story there became any culture that mostly lives in the desert. It's Mexico. Mm. Sometimes it's the Middle East. Uh, uh, it, oh, Somalia and Black Hawk Down. Yeah, it's yeah. just it's become synonymous with this is not a white place it's, and yeah. it's very hot there. Yeah, and yeah, it's, it's not cool and we need to stop doing yeah. that shit. There's a lot of like funny compilations you can find all over the, yeah. the internet about you know here's here's what it looks like in America It's the exact same shot in Mexico and it's just green. Yeah, exactly. So um, in any case, a uh, bit of a bummer. I'm not going to waste any more time uh, right. talking about how it's underwhelming. You've got the gist of it. Uh, there's two more films you have to talk about, and unfortunately, I didn't see them. All Tell right. me about the Survivor. Hey, uh, the Survivor uh, is in a parallel universe. This is a Best Picture contender. Is it that uh, good, or just because of the pedigree? Uh, just kind of just because of the pedigree, but it's also okay. good. Okay. Uh, it's um, it's Barry Levinson film. Oh, yeah, remember remember when Barry Levinson won Best Director for Rain Man? I remember that. Yeah, it's kind of a big deal filmmaker, uh, really. Uh, Barry Levinson. He did Diner. He did The Natural. He did Wag the Dog. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, he won the the Oscar for Rain Man. Yeah. He did a film called Liberty Heights. Oh yeah. At one point, he did uh, Avalon. Did he do Avalon? I think it was out. Yeah, he did Avalon. Yeah. Uh, he's done he yeah, a lot toys. of toys. I'm fond. Of, a lot of people don't like toys. I'm fond of toys. Uh, there's a the lot right to age. like in toys. There's yeah. a lot. To, he did. A, he did a pretty good uh, um, found footage horror movie called The Bay. Oh, I didn't see The Bay. The Bay's pretty yeah. creepy. It's about a town that's uh, um, gets uh, infected by water parasites, and by the time anyone notices, everyone's like got like parasites coming out of their body and shit. Oh, like it's really creepy. That's yeah. fun. It's good. It's actually one of the better late of the later. Found footage movies where people just weren't paying attention to the genre so much. It's one of the better examples of okay, it. Yeah, but uh, Barry Levinson, long, long, hardworking director, has done a lot of really interesting movies. Mm-hmm. Not all of them great. Uh, uh, Good Morning Vietnam was a big deal back in the mm-hmm. late 80s. Oh, huge. That movie was everywhere. Uh, I, I, a lot of people liked his film Sleepers. I wasn't so fond of that one. Sleepers has one of the most amazing casts ever assembled. But it's such a downer, It's dude. a real downer of a movie. Holy like, shit. Like, it is just depresso It's Oh, my God. God just look up the premise of that movie. It's just horrifying and sad, and it's mm. just, it's uh, but but still, astoundingly good cast in that movie. Like but, holy shit! But here's Barry Levinson doing a a, mm. a prestige picture of Academy caliber. Mm-hmm. It is a sports Holocaust movie. Wow. Yeah, it is the true story of uh, Harry Hef, Harry Haft, who uh, was a, a Jewish prisoner in Auschwitz and Birkenau. And uh, he's played by Ben Foster, who is, not to put too fine a point on it, one of the best actors of his generation. Yes. That he has not gotten a pile of Oscars is beyond me. He's never been nominated. He's been, and, in, some, he's been in some movies that got attention. The Messenger was nominated for the, Woody Harrelson. The Messenger, and uh, I, I heard some buzz for him for 310 Yuma, where he played sort of like the bad guy. Oh, he's so good in that movie. He's really good. He's also really funny. He's in a movie yeah. that nobody likes called Big Trouble, oh, which... Yeah. Uh, was delayed because one of the big funny plot points was sneaking a bomb onto a plane and it was set to be released shortly after 9-11 so they yeah. had to delay it. And... That movie got brushed under the rug. Yeah, by the time it came out nobody cared. You know you know what movie he got like a lot of buzz for and a lot of people thought he was going to get nominated for was Hell or High Water. There you go, yeah. yeah. Also, Jeff Bridges um, was nominated but not him, yeah. 
He was good in Hell or High Water. He was really good in um, was it Off the Grid. Leave No Trace. Leave No Trace. Leave um, No Trace. That's a brilliant. Movie. He's really really good in Leave No Trace. Yeah. He's really really good here um, yeah. because he's playing a. a Somebody who is survived, hence the name, the survivor, who is surviving by uh, being trained by a Nazi general, uh, played by Billy Magnuson, to uh, box other inmates in these concentration camps. Mm. And it cuts back and forth from the past when he's uh, sort of, and when he wins, his opponent is shot. So he has Dear to live. With, so he has to live with this that he's boxing these. People if he loses, he's, he'll be shot. Though, if right? he loses, he'll be shot. Oh my but God. if he beats them, he knows they'll be shot. So he's essentially let's lose, lose. Yeah, he's essentially yeah. Ki- killing other inmates. Yeah. And and that's something he's sort of weighing on him. And it cuts back to the present where he is now much older and uh, in the 1940s, like 1949, mm. like after the war is over, he's yeah. uh, gone, come to America and now he's boxing. Uh, he gets to fight Rocky Marciano. That's something wow. he actually did. Is it Rocky and, Marciano played by anyone like cool or does uh, someone who looks like him? Just says someone who looks like him. Okay. It does, doesn't play a major role in the movie. Okay. But one of the reasons he wants to fight Rocky Marciano is it'll get his name in the paper. If he gets his name in the paper, it might alert his fiancée from prior to the war, who he's lost track of, and might might be dead. So he's trying to get notice so that she might find him. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Okay. Uh, Wow. uh, His his coach, John Leguizamo. Okay, great actor. Rocky Marciano's coach, Danny DeVito. Wow, (laughs) that's a good cast. Yeah, um, he ends up... uh, the, The... woman that he keeps badgering in sort of the records office to keep looking for his lost love is played by Vicky Creeps Aww. and he ends up marrying her. Vicky Creeps was in uh, Phantom Thread. That yeah. was her big uh, her big breakout. And I'm actually disappointed she hasn't been in more since. She's uh, fantastic. She, yeah. She'll she, she's okay. Her, no. her, her career is on the upswing. Vicky well, I'm Creeps glad. Is, I'm just uh, saying. Um, I just feel like I feel like she should have had like a bunch of real big yeah, roles she, like, she, right she, away. She's going to be huge someday. Okay, good. Um, and uh, uh, the reporter that is coming in to t- tell Harry Haft's story uh, is played by, uh, and this is in the future, in the 60s, uh, played by uh, mm. uh, Peter Sarsgaard. Oh, okay. Good cast. Great cast. Great pedigree. Wonderful photography. Music by Hans Zimmer. Yeah. Holocaust sports movie. How is this not in the Oscar conversation? They just dropped this on HBO with no fanfare. This is like an HBO movie? This is an HBO movie. Ah. This did not go to theaters. That's a bummer. It's a bummer. And There's room in theaters. Like, nothing opened the last two weeks. And it's sad, and it's strong, and it's intense in that Hollywood like sort of way. Think, it's pretty slick. I mean, but, if you're, uh, and you're saying it's really good. It's, it's really good. Then you, it's just, it's kind of weird that they would dump it like that. Like, yeah, yeah. Because, like, again, it sounds like something where, like, you could potentially get noticed for it, and they just think, wow, yeah, I, wonder and, what, I wonder what's up with that. And if you look up the real uh, uh, Harry, Haft, Harry Haft, uh mm. You learn that uh, we know his story because his son wrote a biography of him. Mm. Uh, he he narrated. He eventually narrated his story to his adult son, and his adult son wrote a book about him. Ah. Uh, and so, when in this movie, when we kind of catch up with the character in the '60s, and he has a young son, and he's hiding everything from his son. Mm. A because it's horrendous, and he just want yeah. to lay it on a kid. And B, yeah. he feels horrendous guilt about it. Sure, and um, it's complicated. And you know that there's a lot of talk about faith. He's gone through this horrible experience. He has no faith left. It's like, where yeah. was God in the concentration camps? No, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm not yeah. going to temple anymore. It's like, well, isn't it important? You know, you were persecuted for being Jewish. It's like, no, that's not important anymore. All, yeah. I, all I've seen is death and pain, and all I've done is hurt people. Yeah. And Ben Foster gets to play this character as this very well-rounded character who's, you know, racked by this guilt, mm-hmm. has to go through an ordinary life, is still really ambitious, is really angry, but also has a sense of humor. He's really a complete character. Okay. They put him in this really great makeup, too, so he's hardly recognizable. Oh, my God. 
Uh, which I'm, uh, it, it, it bothers me. That, again, I didn't say it. Maybe I wouldn't like it. I don't know. But it bothers me that you're literally the only reason I know this movie exists. Yeah. Yeah. And no, it's... I've heard no one else talk about it. I saw no advertising whatsoever at all. Uh-huh. It's nonsense. Uh, ben Foster has, I don't know what kind of like demon he displeased <laughs> that his movies just aren't noticed because yeah. he is great. Uh, he should have gotten Oscar nominations for something like the messenger. He was in a movie called the program, which was directed by Stephen Frears. Mm-hmm. Another high, this, and this is another sort of Oscar nominated filmmaker yeah. where he played Lance Armstrong. Yeah. And uh, it was about the doping scandal and what Lance Armstrong went through. He's great in that as well. Yeah. He does excellent work. I got to see him in a production of a streetcar named desire, uh, where he played, mm. um, uh, um, Stanley? Stanley. Okay. Sorry. That sounds, like, that sounds like an awesome production. Yeah, he, he's Stanley, and uh, Blanche was played by Gillian Anderson in that uh, Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I am so jealous of you. This, that sounds amazing. This, th- well, I wasn't there live. This was one of those oh. things where um, a lot okay. of like live theater productions were like being snuck onto YouTube during lockdown. Oh. So it, we so saw a couple of anymore? those plays. So, yeah, I don't think you can see it anymore. Damn it. That but, sounds yeah. amazing. That sounds phenomenal. So yeah, Ben Foster plays Stanley and Gillian Anderson plays Blanche. Yeah, I'm looking at I'm looking and, uh, at and the the uh, the shtick with that production was they yeah. they set it inside inside an apartment building with it's just the frame the, mm-hmm. there's no walls and the entire stage was in the round and the entire stage rotated throughout the entire production ah. like very slow it was on a, like a, a lazy Susan so wow. like everybody got a good angle. Damn. Uh, so yeah, Ben Foster, great. He's in a Barry Levinson film. Great. It's a Holocaust drama. I'm, I'm it's, it's also a sports movie. I'm so looking, there's a lot of yeah. uh, some of the sports movie tropes. Like you need to keep your feet apart and keep your fists up. And, you know, Danny yeah. DeVito's being very fast talking in the, that Danny DeVito kind of way. Yeah. Uh, Danny DeVito hasn't hasn't missed a... He's 77. He hasn't missed a step. He's such a good actor. Oh. It, it, I'm looking at Ben Foster's, like, filmography right now. Oh. And I was familiar with it. I always want to have it all in front of me. He should have been nominated for at least four Oscars by now. Yeah. Like, yeah. bare minimum, he should have been nominated for uh, Leave No Trace. Uh, what, do we, what do we got here? Uh, should have been nominated for Leave No Trace. Should have been nominated for The Messenger. Mm-hmm. Should have been nominated for 310 to Yuma. He could have been nominated for Liberty Heights, which was a film he made as a teenager back in 1999, also with Barry Levinson. Oh, well, that explains it. Uh, oh, and Hell or High Water's the other one, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah, Liberty Heights is... It's, it's more of a nostalgia piece. It's really kind of yeah. a little bit more lighthearted. There's, like, a... a and it's about sort of... Uh, Overcoming a lot of racial tensions, so yeah. his his uh, the the young woman he's fallen in love with is black, and there's all this scandal. You can't date a black woman because you're mm. a white man, and this is the 1950s, and that's not allowed. And they're just and he's just like whatever, fuck you. Yeah. Uh, there's a a rather hilarious scene in Liberty Heights where Ben Foster comes downstairs uh, on his way to a Halloween party, dressed as Adolf Hitler. <laughs> Oh. Uh, because he's a teenager, he doesn't remember the war. This is the early 50s, yeah. and his parents remember quite well. He's in, in a Jewish family. It's like, yeah, I'll just dress as this funny monster from history. It's funny to him. Yikes. And uh, and, and his mom is played by B.B. Newart, says, you cannot leave the house like that. You are going to... It's like, why? It's Halloween. This is for fun. And he, there's this wonderful bit of acting where he's like, I'm going to call your father. And his father, I think, is Joe Mantegna. Uh-huh. And he gets on, on the phone with his dad. And we only see his line. It's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay, okay, da- uh, okay, Dad. Like, like, <laughs> like you just sort of see his panic rising. It's just great acting from Ben Foster, and, awesome, and he goes yeah. back up and changes his well, costume thank God. immediately. Yeah. yeah, that's wow. 
All right. Well, well Liberty Heights is. I, I like. It I actually never saw that movie. Either. I didn't. I remember when it came out. I saw the trailer a bunch of times, but I never actually saw it. So, right. and I didn't see this. And this is something I'm definitely going to try to make time for because it sounds really good. Yeah. And then and he's, he even had a, a chance at like a big blockbuster. He was one of the X Men movies. He was in X Men Three. Yeah, he played, he was uh, in, he played uh, the character of Angel in X Men. He was also Medivh in Warcraft, a movie which is oh, that's fine. Right. Warcraft, a movie which is Warcraft movie, is kind of trash. But that was that was it, his big like, it's blockbuster. It's junky, thing, silly yeah. fantasy, and you know what? As that, it's fine yeah. actually like seriously just it's no worse it's no worse a hundred trillion dollars yeah it costs way too much but like it's no worse than like any of the other fantasy sci-fi movies we now look back at the 80s mm. and go those were great <laughs> like seriously i will take like it's it's around as good as willow like Willow is not no. that okay. Willow's okay. Willow it's, might not be the best example. Well, well it's not. As it's good okay. As it's as good as Conan the Destroyer. Uh, Conan the Destroyer is charming though because it's so cheap. I realize War- Warcraft that Warcraft loses a lot of its charm because it's so. You bleeding know what? Expensive. Let's have this conversation another time. Yeah. I like Warcraft more than you do. Anyway, yeah. moving on. The last thing is a new documentary about George Carlin called George Carlin's American Dream. Yeah. Um, yeah, George Carlin is always brought up on social media, isn't he? Uh, mm-hmm. George Carlin, who passed away a couple of years back, um, he died in 2008. Mm-hmm. Uh, God, has it been that long? Yeah, it's been a while. It's so weird because, like, a lot of people, they pass away, and then, like, they come up when they come up. Mm-hmm. George Carlin is such a ubiquitous presence. Yeah. Just because I, the, of all the amazing things that he said and stood for, yeah, that so, it really uh, does feel like it was only a couple years ago. So he's he's quoted all the time. And I think it's yeah. important to remember that George Carlin hates you. Uh, <laughs> George Carlin isn't on your side. George Carlin didn't have a side, especially at the end of his life when he had kind of just given up on humanity. Um, But yeah, it it sort of traces his whole career. And I think this is a very, it's a two-part documentary. It's also on HBO. Uh, So it's about, uh, it's like two features length. It's about three and a half hours altogether. It goes from his early career when he had a dream of being the next Danny Kaye, and he did a lot of sort of variety show stuff on television, realized that wasn't where he needed to go, uh, was actually a lot of a lot more interested in, like, drugs and hippie culture, so he started doing stand-up about that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. uh, Every time he felt his uh, career was kind of going stale, or, you know, he, he decided to shift. George Carlin was really wise about that career-wise, about figuring out what he could do next. That really was a little bit more revolutionary. Where could he push things? And George Carlin is one of those rare people that actually did push things into new territory. And he really changed uh, stand-up comedy in a lot of different ways. And... Uh, you got to see sort of the push and pull between sort of what he pushed out, what the kinds of things he said he uh, was talking about. He was very language-obsessed for a long time. One of his more famous bits from uh, sort of the early part of his, that hippie phase oh, was of his the, career was the seven words you can't say on television. Yeah, he did a whole bit about how, like, you can say almost anything on television except for, like, seven words. Mm. And he just completely analyzed <laughs> the shit out of those words. Yeah. It was great. I also like one he did, he did where he uh, looked at all the Ten Commandments. Yeah, he did yeah. a bit where he just hyper analyzed all the Ten Commandments and he whittled them down to two. two yeah. <laughs> the only really two that you need. Which is a great thing. Like, and when he gets down to the end, it's like, okay, and on the, the last one we're going to talk about, the Tenth Commandment, is uh, murder. The Fifth Commandment. Pregnant pause. But when you think about it. <laughs> yeah, everyone can read murder is bad. Except, you know, the Bible's pretty vague about that sometimes. Well, and also, you know, murder is kind of a regular part of humanity. Yeah. That, that was later More. in his career. Yeah, yeah. well, it was later in his career, yeah. but it was a similar bit in some ways. Yeah, uh, George Carmen, Carlin would agree with me on this bit. He says his, his peak was with uh, his bit, Jammin' in New York. Mm. His great great his album. His show, Jammin' in New York, which he, uh, came out in 1992. Yeah. And that's kind of where he pushed things over, kind of to the next level. That's mm. kind of where he peaked. After Jammin' in New York... He be he essentially became like a, a huge misanthrope. 
a big part of this movie is devoted to his marriage. He was married twice. Uh, his, uh, his first wife was Brenda, Brenda Carlin, mm. uh, who he married in 1961 up until her death in, uh, 1997. And how this was the only group he wanted to join. Uh, he had, he lost his faith early on. He, uh, he was raised in a Catholic church, but you know, he, he had really no interest in being like a good Catholic boy. He had a lot to question about the Catholic church and, uh, was pretty staunchly atheist most of his life. Mm. I don't think he ever like used the word atheist to describe himself because that's a little bit too, I guess, tribalist even for him. But yeah. he was very clear about his his complete lack of in faith in systems and in gods. Yeah, his his uh, his, and, his his Catholic upbringing comes up a lot in his yeah. uh, in his stand up comedy, and you can tell he's not he's not really following it. Anymore. No, well, I mean, he yeah. he's, and he, he raged against religion. It's like you want to yeah. talk about a good bullshit story. Holy shit. Uh, and yeah, his how uh, he would write little notes to uh, to Brenda and how he'd sort of leave, leave little tiny love letters, a practice that actually kind of expanded when he married his second wife, Sally, mm. and uh, how he came up with this whole... Uh, and this was... Uh, he married her in 1998, shortly after uh, Brenda died. He one of those people who can't be alone, George Carlin. Mm. And uh, he was very sweet with his second wife as well. And his marriages were really kind of the thing that sort of pushed him through. His first marriage wasn't always the healthiest because George Carlin has talked very frankly about his substance abuse. He was a, a drunk and he was into cocaine for a long time. And it took him a long time to shake that. And that nearly threw his marriage uh, threw his marriage off. But it kept it together as well because she was also an addict. So they were like mutually addicted for a while. That's uh, talked about very frankly. I appreciate that they talked to other comedians about this, but not in a hero worshipy kind of way. That's good. Like they do say, I was impressed and I love this bit, but they also mm. talk about sort of the role of comedy. And I think Jerry Seinfeld says something pretty damning mm. where he says, you know, George Carlin did say a lot of these things, but let's not take the world of stand up comedy too seriously in terms of like philosophy. George Carlin did say that stand-up co- comedians were a lot like philosophers, at least the way it was, like in ancient Greece. Mm-hmm. And and uh, Jerry Seinfeld said, mm, you know what? I don't believe that. I think that comedians don't necessarily change people's minds, even though I think anybody could change somebody's mind. Right. So I think th- this documentary, uh, it's directed, uh, co-directed by Judd Apatow, oh. uh, is really trying to play very fair with George Carlin. It's not That's, trying to vaunt him because... I think George Carlin would want it that way. He wouldn't want to be vaunted. Uh, no. he, he doesn't want to be held up. And in fact, especially if you look at a lot of the stuff near the end of his career, and a lot of the comedians that they interview say this, they say, by the end of his career, we just can't watch him anymore. He's not doing comedy anymore. He's just an angry old misanthrope who's talking about what he hates about the world. This isn't funny anymore. Mm -hmm. It's not really revolution anymore. It's just vitriol. Well, you can't be revolutionary your entire career unless you burn out real fast. Like, you you know, it's a lot to ask. But George Carlin was also very frank about how, uh, you know, the the line he says, if you scratch a cynic, you'll find a a disappointed idealist. And he was just disappointed to the point where he just didn't care anymore. And he kind of resigned himself to watching humanity burn itself down. And there is a really damning uh, montage right near the end of this where Mm. we have actually one of his older routines. It's from, I think, uh, like the George W. Bush administration. Uh But it shows a lot of footage from last week and a lot of the Trump administration, a lot of like the the, the horrendous things that are going on in politics right now. And it's perfectly applicable. So George Carlin's American Dream is actually a very cynical statement about how the world has fallen apart. And George Carlin was there to say, look, the world is falling apart. Um, 
I think yeah, he's yeah an incredibly important figure. You watch some of his old mm-hmm. stuff; it's just as relevant. It's just as striking. Yeah. A lot of it's aged incredibly well. Some of it's aged badly, but some nobody, it, yeah, nobody's he's, perfect. He's, he's he's you know made some some rough jokes about you know topics that are yeah uh, he's not very sensitive about anymore. But uh, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of sort of his whole body of work, that's like such a small part of it. You can yeah. kind of take well, it with a grain of salt. And there's a great clip. Um, there's a great clip of him talking to uh, Larry King. Mm-hmm. That's made the rounds for a lot of time where he talks about how, you know, comedians can't spend all their time punching down. Yeah. You know, you can't, you're punching up. Good. Hmm. You know, the people need to be taken down. In fact, punching down, you're just hurting people. That's not really good. That's not really good comedy. So punching the way punching down humor ought to work is if you're wielding it uh, as if that's the punchline. You're punching down. You're doing a responsible thing. It's a little bit of a shock. And I think a lot of comedians, can't do that well so it's you just really becomes hurtful you, you need finesse yeah, you, need, yeah. you need absolute finesse you need absolute control over your message like a, there like, needs to be no confusion yeah. over what you mean and what mm. you mean needs to be good yeah, like uh like yeah. weird al yankovic wrote a song about the amish yeah he's kind of making fun of the amish a little bit that's punching down but that's playful i think it works well, there's, when there's nothing weird hateful al about no, the amish no, and it just basically wouldn't it be funny if the amish had a rap song yeah which is yeah, it's a little, it's a little mm-hmm. shitty, but like, it's also, well, also if that's the uh, worst thing he did in his career, he'd be fine. And it's also this this yeah. funny juxtaposition because uh, Mennonites are known for humility. That's a big part of, of yeah. their their uh, belief system and their ethos. Yeah. And the rap song is all talking themselves up. I know I'm a million times as humble as thou art, is yeah. one of the lyrics. So there's a way to punch down in a playful, respectful way. Yeah. Weird Al Yankovic does it. Well, because you're not, because it's not even a punch at that point. It's just no. a poke. Yeah, yeah, you can poke a little bit, maybe, and, but like and, punching and he, is weird. Al, is yeah, like, weird. Al even yeah. said in interviews, "It's like, oh, there's nothing I love more than mocking defenseless people." But he's saying that you know, kind of in yeah. a fun way. Yeah. Um, if if you're gonna do that, do 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 what Weird Al does. You have to do it very yeah. gracefully. You have to be as good as Weird Al. You do, and yeah, and, and I, I feel it's like hard. and yeah, even, George, even Weird Al hasn't always nailed it. Yeah, know? George Carlin was always very very aware of where he stood, what his career was, and the kinds of things he was saying. At the same time, he always kind of wanted to be Danny Kaye, which is why he showed up in, like, TV shows and movies all the time. Yeah, they get Alex Winter in this, so he could talk about his experience working with George Carlin on the Bill and Ted movies. Well, that's nice. Yeah. Um, he did do some acting. He was, you know, a movie I, I recently watched for the very first time, hmm. and if you had asked me if George Carlin was in this, I would have told you no. Uh, the Prince of Tides. He's in The Prince of Tides. He's in The Prince of Tides. We're talking about that in the documentary. He plays, he plays um, The Prince of Tides is um, a Barbara Streisand movie mm. uh, starring Nick Nolte as a guy whose sister tries to kill herself and he goes to where she's been living in New York because uh, his marriage is on the rocks and he stays there for a summer talking to her psychiatrist played by Barbara Streisand. They're trying to figure out what happened because she's in oh. a coma. And... Uh, George Carlin plays his sister's gay neighbor. Okay. And uh, he's good in it, actually. He's very good in it. But, like, it's just, you would ask me, Hmm. was George Carlin in The Prince of Tides before I'd seen Prince of Tides? I would say, of course not. (laughs) But, yeah, he he did Um, some acting. I got to meet George Carlin once. Oh, my God. That's cool. Uh, Well... I, I sold him a ticket when I was working at a movie Still theater. Still cool. What, so, remember, what he, remember what he saw? He was seeing Dogma, 
which is a movie yeah, he's in. That's, uh, that's kind of sweet, yeah, actually. He, uh, and Dogma actually came at, uh, they talk about this. If you look at his finger, he's wearing a bandage around his uh, wedding ring. Oh. Because it was shortly after his first wife had died. Oh. And he wasn't ready to take the ring off yet. Oh, that's sweet, actually. And, and Kevin like, Smith said, well, can we cover it with a bandage? We're not going to make you take it off. Can we yeah, cover it? You're, but you're, you're but playing a cardinal. He's, he's playing a married. cardinal yeah. in that movie, so he couldn't have a wedding ring. So they yeah. just covered it with a bandage. That, that's actually sweet. Yeah. So nice. and they, they get Kevin Smith in this film as well. That's cool. Um but yeah, I, I got to say, uh, it was like, oh, George Carlin. It's like, yeah, one for Dogma, please. And I actually said, you're paying money to see your own movie? And, and, and he looked at me right in the eye and he kind of chuckled. He says, yeah, I think that's bad luck in some cultures. <laughs> that's <laughs> nice. Anyway, so that was my, that's that's my nice. George Carlin story. That's pretty good, actually. He had, he had a good line for it, too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for, off, for off the cuff, pretty good. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so that is it for the critically acclaimed uh, movie reviews. Let's review some films on the critically acclaimed scale. Once again, uh, the critically acclaimed scale at the end of every episode, we review films on a scale of C- to C+, where C is average. There's some good, there's some bad, but overall it just kind of turns out, okay, it's fine. Mm. C+, is above average. That's a movie we genuinely recommend. Uh, it might simply be quite good. It might indeed be the best film ever made, but either way, it gets a C+, and C- is below average. We genuinely do not recommend this movie, for better or worse. Uh, but, um, yeah, it could just be not very good. It could be the worst film ever made. We give it a C-. On that note, Whitney, mm-hmm. George Carlin's American Dream. Uh, C+. Plus. Oh, I recommend okay. this. I think it's... If you don't know who George Carlin is, this will teach you a lot about George Carlin. If you do know, it's it's actually fair and respectful in, I think, a way Carlin himself might appreciate. But, nice. but I don't want to speak for George Carlin. I feel like of an asshole. Uh, fair enough. Uh, next up, Barry Levinson's The Survivor. Uh, also, also a B+. Plus. Um C plus or C plus B plus whatever we got. And B plus is your highest rating ever. Uh, no, it's a C plus. <laughs> okay. uh, I I do like. Sorry, it's it's laid. God, it's late. Like I'm a little under the weather. We're wrapping it up. It's um, been a long episode. No, a C, a C plus for uh, for this one. I think this is a really good, uh, well put together, strongly acted, great looking prestige Hollywood picture. Hmm. It does have that Hollywood sheen to it, but if you want that kind of big Hollywood drama, this is it. That's not fundamentally bad. Yeah. Uh, n- uh, next up from me, Mondo Cane, uh, this, uh, the Italian dystopian film, which is basically like Oliver Twist in kind of sort of sci-fi land, but not really. Mm. Um, yeah, it, there's some there's some good performances in it. If you watch it, you'll have something to latch on to, but I don't oh. recommend it, so I'm going to give it a C-. minus. It's just kind of underwhelming. That's too bad. Uh, next up, Pleasure. Pleasure, a C+. Plus. Mm. Also, I think this is a, kind of an important movie in a lot of ways. I think mm. this is... In, in an ultra-saturated world, in a world that's saturated with a lot of porn, I think it's good to take a look at what goes on in, in the porn industry. Indeed. So yeah, C+. Okay, the new Shudder film, The Sadness. Uh, I mean, this is pretty damn extreme. Uh, I don't know what letter grade I could give it. Like, you you, well, well, you know if you have the stomach for something well, like this. Well, listen, there's, it's definitely made for a particular audience. Yeah. Would that, let's just but go on I guess, go off okay, of that if, for if you. you. Yeah, if, if you're yeah. one of those people who likes extreme heavy metal kind of gore, mm-hmm. uh, then this is definitely a C+. Plus. This is yeah. one that really provides what yeah. you know the, your bloodthirst. But, uh, but be warned, without, it's not for everyone. It's not for everyone, and it's actually, because it's called The Sadness, it's really downbeat. Yeah. It's not like fun kind of gore. It's really... Yeah difficult to consume uh next up we've got alex garland's men uh mm. personally i found this film to be very handsomely produced cinematography is great performances mm. are really good some really creepy things in there i hadn't seen another movie however ultimately i feel like it's just trying to truss up something 
kind of half-baked. All it's right. like a lot of sprinkles on a half-baked donut. <laughs> uh, so if you like sprinkles, sure, you'll get there. It'll get you what you did, but I don't think it's that a lot of nutritional uh, value. So I'm going to give this one a C-. Well, a lot of, a lot of uh, just plain donut dough is still plenty tasty. Yeah, so, but, it's, uh, but it's got rags and it. It's not good for you. I suppose not. Shouldn't even, shouldn't uh, I, I like this one. I'm not going to give it a C plus. I'm going to give it a high C because I don't think it's a. It's not a home run. Okay. Uh, Alex Garland does a lot of really interesting stuff, but yeah, he doesn't follow through in I think the ways I think he wants to. Mm. Uh, but I still think it's worth your time. I yeah. think it's really fascinating. There's a lot of good nightmare stuff in it. So yeah, go for it. Yeah. Uh, next up, Firestarter, uh, the oh. new Stephen King remake. Well, that's a big goose egg. It's a C minus. Big old C minus. Mm. Boring and. Bad. And convoluted. Yeah. Boring and convoluted and pointless. And yeah, the one thing I will say is it's not the cast's fault. Zach Efron in particular. So easy to point at this and go, oh, Zach Efron. Like, Zach Efron's doing his job. He's actually pretty good in it. But yeah, it's just a really limp remake. It does not work. And uh, then finally, Chippendale Rescue Rangers, which as, as much as John Mulaney is on my shit list right now. Mm. Um, this is actually a very clever film. It is very well put together. It's reasonably well constructed. Obviously, it's catering on a lot of uh, nostalgia, but it doesn't rely on that instead of story yeah, and theme man. and comedy. The story and theme and comedy all work really, really well. It just ha- happens to also be about nostalgia, yes. and I think that's a great way to go. I'm going to give it a C plus. Uh, I too will give it a C plus. I yeah. think it's really clever and exciting. It's uh, just dazzling. They did put a lot of thought into a lot of the visuals and a lot of the different animation styles. There's a lot of clever uh, stuff in it. And uh, if you're into the nostalgia stuff, it will provide. But yeah, to, yeah. Your, to your point, it's not reliant on it to a detriment. Yeah. Now, you are going to have to know who Chippendale are and a little they, bit of... They kind of explain A little it. bit of a working knowledge of a lot of what these shows are will help you. Yeah, I think I think if you're if, if, I think you're, if, your if you're kids in have the never world seen, of animation, yeah. then you're definitely going to appreciate. I, I think I think if you have if you're watching this with kids and they've never seen Chip and Dale's Rescue Rangers, they'll get it. Yeah. They may not appreciate it on the level of people who grew up with it, but I think they'll get it and they'll well, be entertained. I, I think a lot of the humor stems from a working knowledge of uh, just the animation industry. Yeah, and if you know what anime, like the history of animation, a lot of stuff uh, that has come before like mm. if you've seen Gumby you're gonna appreciate the cop character a little bit more the J.K. Simmons character indeed uh, so uh, it's still gonna work if, mm-hmm. even if you don't know that stuff uh, it'll work better if you do yeah uh, a, a friend of mine once uh, described The Simpsons this way if if um, if you know nothing, you'll laugh. If you are well-educated, you'll roar. And I think that's huh. that's the case of, uh, of Chip and Dale. I like that. Okay, and uh, so yeah, that is it for our movie reviews this week. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back next week with reviews of films like the Bob's Burgers movie and Top Gun Maverick. Uh, Not see- Top Gunner. No, probably that's probably out of theaters by then, unfortunately. Yeah. If it pops up on VOD, maybe we'll try to cram it in. Um, but, uh, yeah, thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. A special thank you to all of our patrons over at <laughs> patreon.com slash criticallyacclaimednetwork. Uh, without you, we would not have a show. Yeah. So we're very grateful to you. And uh, we want to make sure everyone knows, because it's a relatively new perk that we're offering on the Patreon page, uh, if you like listening to our show but you find commercials annoying, we totally get it. Every single tier at the Patreon page, even $1 a month, you get access to all of our shows ad-free. Yes. Uh, you don't get all of the Patreon-exclusive shows unless you pay up at the tier that those are on, including our show uh, Only the Best. We review every single film ever nominated for Best Picture. <coughs> all our Yesterdays, we review every single film, uh, ever, sorry, every single episode of Star Trek mm-hmm. in order. 
Uh, those are at different tiers, but if you just want to not hear the commercials anymore, you can head on over to the Patreon and do that. You can also vote for future episodes of Critically Reclaimed. We also have... Uh, bi-monthly sorry bi-weekly now hangouts uh where we're doing uh trivia we're doing trivia nights with our with our patrons uh, a lot of fun over there so thank you everybody for joining up it means the world to us uh if you want to talk about anything we discussed on this episode we would love to hear from you uh did we get something wrong do you want to dispute a critique do you want to ask us to elaborate on anything we discussed in this episode feel free to email us our email address is letters at critically acclaimed.net we might read your. We might answer your email on an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail here on the channel. Whitney, what is our PO box for people uh, who prefer the old-fashioned? Well, send us a letter. Uh, critically acclaimed network PO box six four one five six five Los Angeles California nine double zero six four. And of course, we're on Twitter at Criticclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And never forget, everyone's a critic. I wanna go to the midnight show. I'm sorry. What? Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.